I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as folktales, mythology, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. Holy shit, are we doing this? Are we actually doing this right now? As long as I don't get attacked by raccoons or falling trees, I'm good this time. Jesus, what happened with the raccoon? Okay, so in all seriousness, a few nights ago, you know, the kitten, she scratches everything, but not with her claws. She does it with her pads, which, you know, I told you she ripped a pad off and got blood all over the bathroom. It's crazy shit. Right. Anyways, I locked her up on the second night without power, I think, because bad storms, power outage. Anyways, I'm laying there in bed and I start hearing the scratching again. And I'm like, that damn kitten. And then I get up out of bed and I'm like, kitten's locked up in the downstairs bathroom. And I just stand there in the middle of my bedroom holding my gun because it's got a light on the end of it. Like, that's my quickest flashlight. And I hear the scratching and I turn on the light and I'm like, oh, it's the other cat. And I shine the light over there and there's nothing there. And we have the upstairs door open, just the screen door shut out to our upper balcony. And I go over there and I shine the light on the balcony. I don't see anything. I go get back in bed. I hear the scratching again. This happens like three times. And finally, I lean enough to see to the side. And there's two fucking raccoons sitting there. Like one's already crawled halfway back off the balcony. The other one's just sitting there cheesing at me. <laughs> and uh, I went and got the spray bottle we're using to train the kitten. And I'm spraying this raccoon through the screen door. And the raccoon's just like. Water's wet. <laughs> Just fucking staring at me. And I, I swear to God, I'm so tired and so hot at this point that I'm like, do I just fire around off into the backyard? I mean, I live in the woods <laughs> and I finally just start hissing at him and spraying him like water a lot. And finally he buggered off. But uh, yeah, man, raccoons were scratching at my damn upstairs back screen door wanting to come in and say hi. There's so many other terrible things I would have thought that sound was. <laughs> like while editing the Blade episode, there's like a phantom tapping sound that I tried to clean up the best I could. And I didn't get all of them because I just couldn't. And it's on my end. And the room I'm currently recording in has a closet that has an entrance into the attic. And all I can think <laughs> is it's fucking Toby, right? From, <laughs> from Paranormal Activity. And he's trying to get through. Oh. So I got a little bit of horror news this week. It looks like Scream 5 is going to be a thing, and David Arquette signed on. Yeah, I finally got to tweet something into our horror group chat from my Twitter notifications. <laughs> I'm not surprised that he agreed to do it, because it's not like he's doing a lot of stuff right now. Yeah. I hear they're in talks with Courtney Cox and Nev Campbell. They're not doing a whole lot either, but I feel like they would be more reluctant. But probably not Courtney Cox, because she did that tweet thing a few months ago where she was watching the Scream movies again, and she cut her Banes to look like Gil Weathers, like live on her Instagram or something. So I, I feel like she's, she's probably pumped a little bit to do it. I just think it's interesting because we heard Blumhouse was going to reboot Scream. Yeah. This is Blumhouse doing this. So maybe they just decided they couldn't redo it. Let's just make another one. I'm okay with that. Who's writing? It's being made by the people that made Ready or Not. Okay. I'm okay with this. Right. I haven't seen Ready or Not yet. <gasps> you still haven't seen it. No, no, I have it and everything. Everybody told me I'd like it, and it, it, it seems right up my alley. It has Samara Weaving in it, which I've liked her and everything I've seen her in. I just haven't found time to watch it. So that's going to be on my vacation list, I think. Yes, make time to watch it. From what I've heard, though, those directors and writers are a good match for a Scream movie. Yeah, if, if it's the same team, that's, um, I'm, I'm more excited now than I was before. I'm always going to be pissed that we don't have Wes, but you know that's not going to change. <laughs> A little bit of horror video game news, Dead by Daylight, a game I barely ever mention on this podcast, had a fourth anniversary stream and announced that uh, they're doing a Silent Hill DLC and Pyramid Head is coming as a killer. That's fucking perfect. 
I'm sure there's a lot more information out there, but just at all the things that popped up in my head, I only had one more horror news announcement, and that's uh, Edgar Wright's next movie, Last Night in Soho. Apparently, he's almost done. I, I think we're going to get a trailer soon, and it's a horror film. And oddly enough, it's starring Anya Taylor-Joy, who we're going to talk about here in a minute. Okay. And the first pictures released in the movie show that Matt Smith is in the movie from Doctor Who. Huh. And more about the, the plot was released, and there's a lot of time travel in the movie. So it's kind of ironic that he's in it. That is kind of ironic. But it says Edgar Wright on it, so I'm going to go see it. Yeah, yeah. That, that part has me excited. I like Anya also. I like her in everything I've seen her in, so... <laughs> I don't have any corrections necessarily for the Blade episodes, partially because, you know, it's been such a long window <laughs> to remember things. And uh, honestly, I'm not finished editing it yet, but <laughs> I did forget to say on the what we watched that I had watched the, the new season of the animated Castlevania show on Netflix. Okay. Like in that time frame. So that's actually the most I've watched, I think, in between episodes that was unrelated was that whole episode. I've been working so much, though, while getting ready for this episode and editing the last episode that the only new thing I've watched is the Snowpiercer TV series on TNT. What have you watched? Um, well, I haven't caught that. I tried to get into Castlevania when it first came on Netflix and I just couldn't do it. It grew on me. They were short enough that I could, you know, rip through the first season really quick. And I really liked it by the end. And uh, the second and third season have like great parts and slow parts. But then again, it's only a handful of episodes of like 20 minutes long. So I just kind of let it ride because I like Castlevania so much. Okay. The wife had been itching to see Attack of the Killer Donuts. And uh, we finally got to see that. And it's a horror comedy. And had trauma done it, it'd be so much better. Like, it's got so much heart. And you can tell the people making it were really trying and not just throwing, like, this is where this should happen and this is where that should happen. But uh, it is funny that there's there's an homage in there that basically the reagent is what's used to make the killer <laughs> donuts. This other flick called The Hive. I don't know if you've seen that. It's got a uh, Sean Gunn in it. Uh, one of James Gunn's like 11 brothers. <laughs> it's basically about this alien goon that the powers that be uh, are toying with that ties people into the collective consciousness, but then starts to take control. But the one that really got me by surprise was this flick called The Lodge. Have you seen that? No, but I've seen it popping up everywhere. So yeah, tell me more. Tell me more. It is right up your alley. It's got, uh, oh, Medora Sloan from hold the dark. I can't think of the actress's name, um, but she's in it. <laughs> I can't either, but I can't think of anything else she was in besides that. So it, it's really cool. It's about her being crazy, but uh, here's, here's the shocking one. So when the power went out, the wife says, well, my MacBook's fully charged. And uh, I'm like, yeah, too bad. They don't put fucking DVD drives in them more uh, in them anymore. So I grabbed one of my external Blu-ray players and we finally started watching Mr. Robot. Okay, <laughs> how's finally. That, how's that for a little late? And uh, just binged through season one until, well, actually, we finished season one without the power uh, running down on her laptop. And uh, we're in season two now. Of course, then power comes back on. We do other things. Um, so it's pretty damn cool. Um, the most shocking thing about my downtime during the power outage is I've almost burned through all of no effects, the hepatitis bathtub and other stories. Okay. Which is just an amazing book about the history of the band and told whoa, by whoa, the band whoa. members. Are you reading? Yes. It's not an audible or anything? No, I am 305 pages into a 356 page book. Listeners, listeners, just <laughs> hold your hands in the air <laughs> and clap for Josh. 
Really good book though. A lot more interesting stuff into the the insights of uh, these guys that I kind of feel like I grew up with, so to speak, by proxy. Just, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But anyways, so that's what's been going on. And uh, somewhere in the midst of all this, we watched two Robert Eggers movies. Oh, oh, are those things we're supposed to talk about right now? <laughs> those are the things we're supposed to talk about now. <laughs> we're sitting here on May the 28th, which is my mother's birthday, by the way. Oh, happy birthday. To talk to you about Robert Eggers. And this is wrapping up what we decided to do with like all the current and new horror directors that everybody's always talking about that have been making making films. And it's just something we kind of did because we started with Eli Roth, I think, maybe. Yeah. And that just kind of brought up the whole splat pack thing. And and of course we had to do Juan and Flanagan because we're, you know, fucking huge fans of them. And we just kind of went through the list with everybody else. But on to Robert Eggers, I like to go deep in, into their background if I can, but he's only been around a few years and there's not as much info out there about him as I'd like to have for a backstory. <laughs> I mean, The Witch came out before hereditary so he's actually been doing this longer than Ari Aster but I could find film school information and things like that on Ari Aster I could not on Robert Eggers but what I could find was lots of interviews with him and he's very open talking about things and he says a lot of stuff to kind of paint a better picture of him okay? okay I could not find any info about film school I don't know if he went to film school okay I know that he has a background in the theater and he worked on sets and costumes and he was a stage theater actor. He was primarily an actor. Okay. He did do a little bit of directing. He did Nosferatu as like a school play, right? And he directed that. And that's why they asked him to direct the Nosferatu reboot right after The Witch, which I think he'd be a perfect match for. And it's currently in production hell right now, but that's still on, on his list of stuff to do. And that's also why he has the short that he did of the Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe that you can find on the internet because that's, that's his background. Okay. And I saw him in an interview saying that that helps him in a way because he can talk the actor talk while directing, right? Because he's done it, right? So he can talk like he's an actor and, and know what they're going through. But he said, sometimes you need to throw all that shit out the window and just tell the actor to go faster. <laughs> and uh, he was quoted saying that sometimes spraying Rob in the face with a fire hose is the best way to get a performance. <laughs> and of course, he was talking about Rob Pattinson when he said that. But I just thought that was like a really funny line to say. He's like, he knows uh, this is what it's like to be an actor. I'm the director right now, though. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and I should say, this is one of those guys that directs and writes all of his own films, which we're seeing that a lot. With the, with the newer crowd, right? Yeah. Like a lot of these new horror directors, they all write their own stuff. He's real big into to mythology and folklore. And he actually said that folk tales, fairy tales, religion, and the occult are the things that he's most passionate about, even more than the cinema itself. Like he loves those things. That's very apparent in his films. And he brought up in, in one of the interviews that animals are a prominent part of folklore and mythology. So he likes to use them where they apply. Definitely a thing. This, this guy has a <laughs> shtick. And he hammers it home, okay? A, a really funny fact about him that I saw, he was apparently second unit director on Sesame Street. Oh, nice. Before, before he did The Witch. And then it would be the scenes like where you see the celebrities like counting on the street and stuff like that. Like yeah. he went to those scenes. So that's a really random thing to have on your resume. <laughs> he listed a bunch of classic horror films that are in his favorite movie list. And I mean classic, like going back to Nosferatu. But he likes the, the older movies, Psycho and stuff like that, like a lot of the roots and the origins. 
Big Lebowski is one of his favorite films of all time, though. There's even (laughs) an homage to that that uh, I hope we bring up later. Yeah. And one thing you'll always notice with a Robert Egger film is he always wants everything to be authentic. So he has all the sets built from scratch after he travels the world and goes to museums and talks to historians and has everything built to make it period accurate. And if something's not accurate, he will complain so much in an interview or a documentary about how he basically failed himself. Right. Yeah. And that's just, just his thing. Like he's mad at himself and the witch because he didn't CGI out Anya's earring holes because there wouldn't have been earring holes back then <laughs> on a period. In. And he said, every time I see it in the HD, I can see the earring holes and I wish I would have CGI'd them out. Right. And it's things like that. And I'll try to remember to bring those up as we go through his two films. But I, I think it's really neat that he likes to do that. And I know we always talk about directors being humble and whatnot, because not many of them are cocky, at least in their interviews. But something interesting with him that he likes to say is he wasn't planning on being a famous director. Yeah. When he made The Witch, he took it to Sundance and he was hoping somebody would give him some amount of money for it. So he'd have a start and, and and have something to put on his resume. And then it just fucking exploded. And he's like, I never said I was a genius. I never said I made the greatest horror movie of all time. You know, I just made a small indie movie to get my start. <laughs> and everybody else said these things. And they expect all these things from me. And I'm just trying to make movies. It's really funny when you when you hear him do a commentary on one of his films or explaining a scene he really sounds like a historian when he's talking more <laughs> than a film director you know what i mean like when we were talking about west craven you're like he sounds like, like a film school teacher which he kind of was right <laughs> I, I think he, it was like literary arts or something yeah, yeah but like he he actually did that for a living robert eggers when he's talking i'm like this guy is meant to like host something on the history channel you know what I mean? Like, like he's mistaking on tours through places and that's what makes me excited about some of his future works but we're here to talk about the director, so we got to start with this first film, which would be 2015's The Vavitch. Hey, back to the Vavitch joke. <laughs> he actually chose the double V instead of the W because he wanted it to look like a period accurate first letter, right? And that's just how they wrote things. So he wanted it to look like a large typeface W on the movie, and that's, that's a way to do it. And uh, if that's what you want to do, he pulled it off. Yep. There's also the town we both born in. There's a building downtown called the Falls Building. I assume it's still there. And I used to make fun of it because it uses the V shaped U. And it's like, hey, check it out. That's the Falls Building. And uh, we'd, <laughs> we'd make fun of it. And then you start, you know, you read books and shit. And you're like, oh, I get it. It's old English. <laughs> you realize you're an uncultured swine at that point. <laughs> yep. That's also known as an American. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I'm not trying to bring politics here. I'm just trying to quote Mr. Potato Head from Toy Story. So the film was written and directed by Robert Eggers, as we said before, and it's starring Anya Taylor-Joy. And this was her first film, which is fucking mind-blowing to me. And he was quoted saying that when he was, you know, taking auditions and he saw her and he listened to her, he thought she was great. And he's like, I don't know if she'd work. And then he started thinking, like, she's so non-Puritan. And then he's like, that's perfect. She's an outsider. And, <laughs> and he got to use her, which was great because he really liked her, her performance. But people probably know her from Split and yeah. Glass. And they say she's like the up-and-coming scream queen. I can see that because she fits into these different period-type horror movies. I'm really excited about 
the new Mutants movie coming out, which is going to be the last Fox-made Marvel movie, and it's taken lesser-known heroes, and they have a horror director and writer making it, and it's done as a dark R-rated horror film. Okay. I know she's done some more, like, uh, like she did Emma's, like, a period piece movie that I hear is really good if you're into that independent period piece type stuff, but I, I haven't seen it. <laughs> There's that uncultured swine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, touche. She's our primary star cast as, as the daughter, Thomason, and her father's played by Ralph Innocent, who apparently lost a lot of weight for this movie just by doing yoga and like eating fruit and vegetables, he said, and chopping lots of wood, which is funny <laughs> that he said that because that is such a huge part of this movie. But he is one of those British actors that has been in, in so many fucking things, whether it's a, a big part or a small part. And I, he's just one of those guys. You just got to look him up and you go, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, cause he, he's had like small parts in like guardians of the galaxy and, and Harry Potter and stuff like that. But, uh, I'm trying to think something he's recently done. He's the hunter in the dark crystal series. They made recently. He did the voice. Okay. And I don't know. Just, just look the guy up. I feel like I'm not doing him any justice, but it's, there's not a lot of horror stuff in there. Oh, apparently he recently was in Brahms the boy too, but I did not and probably will not see that film. <laughs> so the wife suffered through it while I sat in the Aww. same room playing on my phone and even she tore it to shreds. Like that, that was the movie. No one asked for. I mean, I didn't ask for the first one. It was fucking terrible. <laughs> the uh, part two so bad. It makes part one seem palatable. <laughs> oh no. And it's like the same guy made it too. Like who thought it was a good idea to, to let him make uh, another movie. Dude, what's worse <laughs> is it's a rinse and repeat of the first movie on so many levels. Anyways, and Thomason's mom slash William's wife is played by Kate Dickey, which a lot of people probably know her from Game of Thrones as Lissa Aaron. And the only other prominent actor I'd say in the movie was Harvey Scrimshaw, who plays the, the brother Caleb. I don't know if he's been in a whole lot, but he's fantastic, especially in one part of the movie. He has a bad time. <laughs> he, he has a bad time, but he acts that bad time out so well. And there, there is a twin brother and sister in the movie, and I'll, I'll cover them, but they're not as big of a part of the plot. And the word insufferable comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, it didn't show them a whole lot. Oh, it's going to be interesting covering this movie because it's so different from a lot of the other things we do. And in my history channel joke, I really feel like kind of takes a play in here. It almost looks like a historical retelling of something more than a film. So I'm going to go over a few little tidbits of information just because I don't know if I can fit them in there. Hell, I don't even know if I can fit audio clips into the movie as I go like I normally do as a smartass <laughs> just because it's hard to do it. Yeah, I can see that. The movie was shot in Ontario. He really, really wanted to film it in New England for historical accuracy. But tax and financial reasons <laughs> moved them on up because that's what happens every time. I think the only scene shot in Massachusetts is when they're on the back of the, the wagon getting pulled away. And that okay. was it. The set was apparently swarmed by mosquitoes and black flies the entire time. And like he was having to direct the movie in a beekeeper suit, basically, because <laughs> they were all just being fucking eaten alive by bugs. I feel so bad for the actors and actresses. <laughs> The movie opens up with some, some crazy violin music playing and it pops up the witch in new England folktale. And that really sets this up and sums it up so much 
But I just want to say the violins are eerie and creepy and they really do remind me of psycho a little bit. Okay. And I don't mean like ripped off, but just that, that like manic style. And you'll hear that a lot throughout this movie. And, and the composer of the movie's name is Mark Corvin and he's done other films, but he, he did this movie and the lighthouse, Robert Eggers next film. And I really like this guy's musical style. He, he really can make you like build tension and uncomfortable with music, which I feel like is very important for a horror film. But we see this Puritan family basically being cast out of town over a religious dispute, right? Like the father's arguing with the Puritan elders in this, uh, this community. And you get the vibe that this is not long after the Mayflower <laughs> on the United States coast. Okay. And it's just like really early on. And you can tell he's really strong in his convictions, which aren't really told to us. That's one thing about Robert Eggers. He does not go back and spoon feed you a lot of backstory that does not help the movie progress. Right. You just need to know that he's not getting along with the religious elders and he's going to take his family and they're going to go start their own homestead. Okay. And we cut to the family traveling by wagon to said homestead, which is in front of some really creepy woods. And yeah. there's even creepier music playing in the background than the woods. and seeing this scene and the way they're praying to the tree line and hearing the music, I'm like, this is so Ari Aster. <laughs> like this is such a Ari Aster vibe. And then I'm like, wait a minute, this movie came out before hereditary by some years. Right. So it's, it's kind of funny that I get that vibe, but this came first. So I wonder if, uh, Mr. Aster is a fan, <laughs> but could be a coincidence, but I, did you get that vibe anywhere throughout the movie? Um, Totally. And there's a lot of things that made my brain, it, it tickled the hereditary part of my brain, which is even more interesting where in interviews where he's brought up, he's like, ABC, this is my shtick. I don't do this. You know, I'm not Ari Aster. And he keeps talking. I know. It's almost like there's this behind the scenes fun feud <laughs> between the two. I heard him say stuff about James Wan on a, a commentary as well. At some point, I think he's just a fan, right? And he, he credits them where they're due. I think it's really odd that I get hereditary and midsummer vibes from this movie and area had nothing to do with it, but their names are brought up together a lot. Like the witch came out and then hereditary came out, you know, a few years later and they, they were talking about those movies a lot and being some of the best horror movies made of all time. And, and no matter what you feel about that, it, it, it could be because the, the similar feeling you get. Yeah, definitely the, the psychological tension thriller angle. Right. But we see that the family has set up a homestead. They have a basic little farm and a shack and a house. And like I said, it's all in the right outside a tree line in the woods, right? And it doesn't tell us how much time has passed. We just, we don't need to know. They have a slight corn farm that they've built. And, and it's been a little while. And we see that Thomason is praying for forgiveness for her sins. And these sins basically consist of her being a, a teenager, right? Being idle in her chores and disobedient to her parents and, you know, standard stuff that would make a Puritan cry. And we can <laughs> see that the family now has a newborn baby named Sam that was not present earlier in the film. So clearly it's been a little while. Yeah. And we see that Thomason being the eldest child takes care of the baby and the chores with, with mom, right? Yep. And Thomason takes baby Sam down by the tree line lays him on the blanket and starts playing a cute little game of peekaboo with him. Like I often do with my daughter, Molly, which makes this scene terrifying <laughs> and, and the cinematography and everything's great. Cause you just see it from under her face. Right. Yeah. And, and you see her put the hands over and then pull them away and it's like, boo, you know, and then it cuts to the baby and the baby's laughing. 
And she does it enough times that everything's fine and you're nice and relaxed. And one of the times she opens her hands and the baby's fucking gone. And the camera just slowly pans up the grass, like maybe he crawled or rolled away, right? And then it cuts to the woods and you can just see the trees and the bushes swaying like something just hauled ass through there. And holy shit, that is like a strong opening scene, right? <laughs> and it's funny that I word it that way. That was actually the original opening scene of the movie. Originally, you saw The Witch, A New England Folktale, and Thomason's playing Peekaboo the Baby. And that was the start of the film. Oh, it didn't show him getting banished. No, no, no. It's only like five minutes of movie or so, but it would have been an interesting start to the film, right? Like he just felt like maybe you needed a little backstory on the family. Okay. So he put that other brief scene in there, but that would have been a fucking rough opener, right? Yeah. That would have been awesome. Like like you said, it's not bad the way it is, but that would have been like, holy shit. (laughs) He said Anya was great for this movie because there's so many times where he just like shoves a fucking camera right in her face and she just goes with it. You know, that's what, if you think about it, think about where the camera is while she's doing the peek of it. Oh yeah. stuff. It's like right there. But we see a woman in a hooded cloak running through the woods, holding baby Sam and she's hunched over and stuff. So that gives you that witch vibe. And I think I read it was actually the makeup person for the movie. They're like, here, you're doing the scene. Come on. Okay. (laughs) And that happens a couple times in the movie, but we see her take baby Sam to a hovel and she approaches the baby naked and has a knife in her hand and, and puts it next to the baby. And then we see her making a witch's brew outside with a lot of red stuff in it and chunks, which it's gotta be blood and entrails, right? Like you just gotta go straight to that. And she takes the, the goop out of there and smears it all across her body and then takes a stick and smears it all over the stick. And she's around a fire and, and she's chanting and we see her right off into the moonlight. Right. And this is seven minutes into the movie and we have a dead baby <laughs> and it's entrails have been covered all over a woman. The music's eerie the entire time. The scene's set up so well. And uh, according to witch lore, because this is, this is Robert's thing, right? Witches bathed themselves in unbaptized baby entrails and blood and they would cover their flying sticks with the goop as well because witches traditionally didn't ride on brooms they rode flying sticks yep it kind of got turned into a, a a broom legend and um robert dagger says the cgi team hated him for this scene because the woman playing the witch had like you know modesty coverings over her body which then had to be cgi'd out and replaced with women genitalia on you know older larger witch women <laughs> and and that's done a few times throughout the movie. The women weren't actually naked when they filmed the scenes. Oh, really? And, <laughs> correct. And so they had, you know, he calls them modesty coverings, but they had those on and then the CGI team would, would turn it into boobs and whatnot. And he was saying it probably wasn't a, a fun <laughs> job to add old crone woman boobies. Can you imagine like being in that office and like, like a, a team team leader going up to one of the guys in his cubicle? He's like, Hey, it's Steve, you, you've been on that nipple for like four hours, man. We've got to move on to the next scene. <laughs> Can you imagine if you went to college for digital film editing and special effects and like you're eating lunch with your buddy that you knew from freshman year and you graduated at the same time and he's telling you like the Star Wars movie he just worked on for (laughs) Industrial Light and Magic (laughs) and this shit he just made and you're like, I did an old crone's nipple in Bush. (laughs) But anyways... We see later that week that Thomason's having a nightmare and we can hear her mother, Catherine, mourning in the background and screaming and crying and praying. And we're seeing all this from the eldest son's point of view, Caleb. And apparently he's a huge fan of his sister's cleavage. Yeah. 
because he's he's eyeballing that. And I mean, I guess he's just becoming a teen and they are definitely isolated. And I'm not saying incest is cool by any stretch of the imagination, but I guess he just wants to know what a boob looks like. Right? Hormones is hormones. But we see Caleb sneak out of the house to his father, William, who is basically letting William know that they can't search for this wolf anymore. So what we know at this point in time is they think a wolf took the baby. And apparently Pops has been searching for it. And he's just saying it's been so long, there's no way the baby's alive, right? And they're just going to have to leave it with God now. And he starts complaining about how none of their crops will grow. And he lets Caleb know that he's been laying traps out in the woods. And he'd like to take his son out to make a man out of him in the woods to check the traps and bring back food for the family, right? They could be the heroes since their crops aren't doing so well. And you see him walking through the woods and you see William often telling his children the gospel, right? And, and that's what he's doing with Caleb right now. Yeah. And Caleb wants to know if Sam is in hell because he was born a sinner and hadn't been baptized yet. Some dark <laughs> shit. Yeah. Shit that we both heard growing up. Exactly. I know that I got a lecture for asking about that before. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you just start to get the vibe that the whole family is just down on their luck because it, it cuts to the family. And we see Thomas and check it on the hen who's only laid one egg. And she accidentally drops the egg and it's got a dead chick in it, right? So they can't even eat that. Yeah. And as we see Caleb and William in the woods, the traps are all empty. So they've been triggered with no, no food there. And William's telling Caleb about how he stole like mother's silver cup that apparently was like this. It was her father's, I believe, right? But it was this thing she cherished. And he sold that for like the traps and the ammo and stuff to try to hunt food for food because the crops are doing so bad. And uh, their dog, Fowler's missing. Like, you can't even get the dog to show up. She's like, as it's cutting to these family members, she's like, man, they're, this, they're fucking having some shitty luck right now. Uh, but wait, they find a rabbit. There's a rabbit in the woods. They can have a meal now, right? So Caleb and William clumsily load their old, like, fl- I guess it's a flintlock gun, right? Like, it's yeah. got the fuse you have to manually light. And it backfires in William's eyes. And at this point, I'm starting to think they might be cursed. Okay. <laughs> Imagine what they brought on that town they were kicked out of. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, that that hair shows up a lot throughout the movie. And Robert Eggers was asked about it. And I love his response. He said, just Google witches and hairs. And it'll explain everything. <laughs> and apparently witches would either possess and see through the eyes of a hair. Or in some accounts, they would turn themselves into a hair. To go spy on families and potential victims and to steal shit from their houses. Man, I'm going to start shooting the bunnies I've been seeing in my yard. Exactly, right? So that's why this bunny shows up. And there's names, give like the, the true names for all these animals. I wish I could remember them all. I know Black Phillip is Charlie. And <laughs> apparently Black Phillip was terrible, but the raven and the hares and stuff were all great to work with as far as stage animals. And the goat was just unruly as fuck. <laughs> But anyways, we see Thomason doing more chores with her little brother and sister, uh, Jonas and Mercy. These are the twins I was referring to earlier. And they're chasing and teasing uh, the the black goat named Black Phillip that I was talking about. And honestly, at this point in the movie, I'm like, where the hell did all this come from? Where the fucking giant goat come from? Where these kids come from? Because I don't really goddamn twins. <laughs> exactly. But they're now present. And um, we see Thomason go to take a little break from her chores at the tree line and William and Caleb return and find the twins teasing black Phillip. And I think father gets knocked on his ass at this point and like muddy and Thomason shows up and gets bitched at by her mom. Cause her mom's pretty much mean to her for their, almost the entire movie. Yeah. And Caleb tells a lie to his mom 
that's as easy as breathing about how he saw an apple tree and he wanted to surprise his mom with an apple. So he told dad to come and they brought the gun in case they saw the wolf that took Sam. Robert Eggers, I do like that he's critical of his own films. I've seen him do that on both of his films in commentary and interviews. And um, he's really mad at himself for not having Catherine and Thomason be close together at the beginning of the movie because Catherine's so mean to her. And yeah. then there's a, there's a turning point at the end where they're closer. And he says it just kind of like it seems out of place because it happened so abruptly. And he wanted her to gradually get mad at Thomason. Like she thinks Thomason took her cup, right? Thomason lost Sam. Thomason's not helping the kids. And she was supposed to start out loving her and then get cold and then love her again. And he real, he feels like he really screwed that up. But anyways, we see Thomason and Caleb uh, doing their assigned chores because I think she has to clean her dad's clothes. I don't remember what Caleb has to do, but they go down to the brook and Caleb's checking out his sister's cleavage again. He's a big fan. And <laughs> she ends up like holding him and putting his head in her chest, probably just what he wanted. And she's just talking to her brother about like back when they were in England. And Mercy spooks them coming out talking about she'd be a witch and she's riding a broom. <laughs> And she's so annoying. Man. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And she's a witch of the night. And uh, she says that the witch took Sam and that Black Philip told her all about. It, okay. And she seems to be teasing, but so far she's pretty spot on. <laughs> and I just want to point that out. But Thomason's had it with her bullshit and very darkly tells her that she's the witch and she has a master and that she stole her own brother. And and took her brother to her master, and she's going to return to eat all their souls, yada, yada, yada. It's a pretty dark scene, and it spooks Mercy, and she fucks off. But Anya's acting right there is fucking awesome. Like, when she just flips the script and turns into the evil witch sister. Yeah. <laughs> but over dinner that night, if we want to call it that, because basically the family's sharing a piece of bread. They pass it around all formal-like. <laughs> Mom's throwing out accusations to everybody about everything they did wrong. Like telling Thomason she thinks she stole her silver wine cup that belonged to her father. And she wants to know if uh, a wolf maybe took the silver cup, too. <laughs> right? Like just being a total bitch to her daughter. And William's getting a little upset because he stole that cup and he traded it, right? So he starts trying to defend her. And basically, the mom goes on a, on a rant about how everything's cursed. That land they're on must be cursed. And she's interrupted by the goats bleeding outside and Thomason gets sent out to go deal with the goats. Like you, you start to find out that's one of her chores. Actually, it seems like all the chores are Thomason's chores. Yeah. Cause the mom's mourning most of the time. And when she goes out there, that goddamn rabbit sitting there staring at her again. Right. <laughs> and that night, basically we see the, the parents argue and, and basically the mom thinks the land's cursed. Their corn is trash. They can't sell it. Um, they shouldn't have left the church. I shouldn't have left England. Mom thinks Sam's in hell, this and that William's trying to like counter argue all this. Meanwhile, the kids are spying and listening to everything from under in this like little shitty shack they live in. But it's really funny because the mom's like, kids, are you there? And of course they don't answer. Right. <laughs> you live in a fucking shack and your, your bedroom door is a curtain. What makes you think you can't fucking hear? Exactly. <laughs> But the important takeaways in there is, is somewhere mom bitches about Caleb is also not baptized, right? So she has concerns for that. And that Thomason's of age enough where she basically, I took it as being pimped off to another family, like marry her out. That's, you don't, you find out later that's not the case, but she's yeah, like, yeah. she's a, she's a woman now and we can send her off to the blah, blah, blah family. And I, I was thinking it was to marry her off, but apparently it's to be their maid. 
basically, yeah. is what yeah, you yeah. find out later. Be the house slave. But William, you know, he, he concedes to his wife at some point, and he says he at least knows of a good family that would take good care of Thomas and let her work, right? So if it came down to that, he knows where to take her. And uh, Caleb tries to sneak off that night with the family horse, and Thomason catches him. And basically, he doesn't want his sister sent away. He loves her, and he doesn't want her sent off to another family. So he has a plan to save them all, right? Like, he's just going to go check the traps. He'll bring back food. He'll save the family. And she convinces him to take her. So they have the bright idea to head off in these creepy woods at night. And they managed to find some food in the traps, right? They actually caught animals and, and they removed them from the traps, put them on the horse. And Thomas is just telling Caleb about like, we actually had glass windows back in England. I promise you, I don't know why you don't remember this shit. And uh, then the fucking killer rabbit of Kerbinog shows up and spooks the horse and Fowler chases it. That rabbit's got a vicious street a mile wide. It's a killer. Look at the bones. But like I said, the, the horse goes mad, throws Thomason, knocks her the fuck out. Fowler's off chasing the goddamn devil rabbit. And uh, Caleb goes chasing after Fowler. And it's funny. I guess they couldn't use the horse for some reason. I don't know if it was too dangerous. Oh, the mud. They couldn't bring it that far into the woods in the mud. So Anya's actually sitting on like the second unit director or somebody's shoulders the whole time. Oh, really? To make it look like she's on a horse while she's talking to her brother. <laughs> huh. But at this point, we cut back to the parents, and they're trying to figure out where in the fuck their kids are, and they're running around the homestead looking for them. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? We can see that Caleb's lost in the woods, still looking for Fowler, even though it's getting dark, and Thomason wakes up from being knocked the fuck out on the ground. And Caleb ends up finding Fowler whimpering on the ground, and he's, he's disemboweled, okay? His inside out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Robert Dagger says he filmed that by getting the, the dog to lay down and then just covered him with blood and guts. Like okay. Just laid it on top of him. That's a neat way to do it, right? Like just get the live animal to lay there, whimper it, and then put the, the fake guts on him. And there you go. <laughs> and it's going to look real as shit. But Thomason can hear her father's cries for him, okay? She follows your father's voice, makes it back to the house, and... Caleb just decides he's got to put a stop to this murderous fucking rabbit, right? Bring up the holy hand grenade. <laughs> he goes looking for the rabbit because then killed his goddamn dog. And he stumbles upon the witch's hovel and the witch comes out and she's much younger looking now and has a lot of that cleavage that he likes so much. Uh -huh. Right. And he's not related to this one. So that's a plus. <laughs> he approaches her trembling like he's scared. But then he gives her a big old smooch. I think it's kind of odd how it's portrayed. So maybe he's entranced is all I could tell myself. Because uh -huh. he really does look terrified, but he's ready to go in for that kiss. And uh, she lays one on him. And then you see a creepy old like crone witch hand come out and grab the back of his head. And then we, we get a cutaway. And it's a really good shot. I like how they did that. Yeah. <laughs> it's really spooky. The woman reminded me of a younger Helena Bottom. Carter, when you see her like in the hood coming out of the house, a little bit. the way she looked a little bit, but apparently she was a Victoria's Secret model and that was the actor's first kiss. The actor that plays Caleb. So ah, it's pretty cool to say your first kiss was the Victoria's Secret model. <laughs> Just saying. Like I always say for all the models, someone please get her a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> but when I first saw her, I was thinking that she didn't need a sandwich because she had like Elizabeth Bathory'd her ass with Samuel <laughs> and it made her look younger. But when you see the creepy witch hand come around, it makes me think that it was all an illusion. And that actually kind of adds to my entrancement. 
yeah, uh, yeah. theory, right? Totally. That that Meg Mucklebone hand comes into frame and then all bets are off. <laughs> it's a good shot. It's a good shot. That's one thing I'll say about Robert Eggers, man, is his uh his framing and his camera angles like to get you with stuff works. Yeah. Like, even Thomason to the baby laugh and the Thomason to the baby missing to fall in the grass. I'm like, oh, I'm creeped out now. <laughs> we cut back to the family homestead that night, and basically they're having a spill the bean session, right? <laughs> As <laughs> the, <laughs> come on, guys, this joke's gonna pay off in about 30 minutes, okay? <laughs> but basically, Catherine wants to know why Thomason and Caleb left the house. And Thomason won't tell her mom shit because she promised Caleb and she can't break a promise to her brother. And William just randomly interjects with confessing that he stole her father's silver wine cup or whatever the fuck it was and sold it. And, um, and he, and he confesses taking Caleb in the woods to, to teach him how to hunt and, and this and that, even though it wasn't supposed to. And they have a shout fest and mama smacks the shit out of Papa, man. She fucking busts him in the nose. And, um, Thomason from this point on is forgiven in her mother's eyes. Right. Yeah. And that's where he thought he fucked up. He, he, he wanted to have him close and then her hater and then close again. And it just kind of went hate to, to, it went from nothing to hate to close, you know? So there you go. But Thomason decides to go out in this horrendous storm again here outside to, to bed the goats that we can hear outside and she finds her naked brother staggering up to the farm very much like a near dark i, mean, I hate Man. to say it but yeah i mean oh is his name caleb also i th- i want to say it is if it's not it'll be on the corrections on the next episode <laughs> but i don't know it just made me think of that of the way he walks up to the fence and kind of falls over but he's like scratched to shit and naked so some shit's done gone down he might have got laid by the victoria's secret model Ooh, or the crone yeah, yeah, there you go. That's, that's, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Hey, they say you always remember your first time. <laughs> you ain't going to forget that shit. It might drive you mad enough to even want to cut off your own head with an axe. <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, <laughs> but basically, time lapses over a few days, and, and we can see that Caleb is laying ill, and not even bloodletting will work. We see the mom try to cut his forehead and drain the blood out, see if it get rid of the fever. They needed leeches. Ooh, yeah, right, leeches. <laughs> Apparently, it was CGI blood, and it looked so fucking real, and I don't know why you would use CGI blood there, but holy shit, that's good CGI blood. <laughs> yeah, they just drug a fake knife on his forehead and then CGI'd the blood in later. Nice. I mean, they added chrome titties. They can do fake blood. <laughs> this guy should also be an industrial light and magic with his buddy. <laughs> But uh, you get some more teasing from the evil-ass fucking Shining Twins to Thomason about the things Black Phillips told him. And she's trying to milk, like, not Black Phillip, obviously, but, a, but another goat while the twins are teasing her. And its teeth squirts blood out instead of milk, right? And the twins see that as she kicks the, the bucket over, but it did it right as she was yelling at the twins. And the twins kind of notice this, even though they seem like idiots. But apparently they <laughs> called into that. Yeah. But back in the house, we see Catherine telling William that this is just like when John Kemp's kid was cursed by Indian magic, right? And this has to be a witch's curse. So apparently they've seen some shit since they came to the Americas. And William says he's going to take Caleb to a doctor, like back wherever town is, right? Where the church was and leave Thomason to stay with that other family. And he's like, I'll just do anything for you, Catherine. And all she wants to do is go back to fucking England. 
Yeah. Fuck this America shit. It ain't working for her. <laughs> and this is the point of the movie I like to call the fucking because this is where shit starts to get real, okay? But Catherine and William make plans for the travels, and they're trying to find, like, non-rotted food because all their corn is rotted until they're awakened by Caleb screaming in the house. And they run in, and he's chanting about an axe cutting off someone's head and his stomach's burning from what's eating him from the inside. And basically his jaw gets locked and they have to pry his mouth open. He spits out a whole rotted apple. (laughs) And at this point, they know he's bewitched. Of course, the twins at this point start shouting that Thomason's a witch and that she does the devil's bidding and that she has signed her name in his book. And she took Samuel off to the witches, right? And they bring up how she even made a goat bleed while she was angry at them. And William wants to get straight to the bottom of this because he's a good old Quaker Oats pilgrim, right? Um, <laughs> he might as well be the fucking guy on the on the cardboard can of oats, man. But he questions his daughter about like believing in Christ and this and that, and he believes her. And then the whole family starts to pray over Caleb to save him. And the twins randomly can't remember their prayers, and then their stomachs start to hurt, and they collapse, shivering in pain. <laughs> And then Caleb wakes up chanting some crazy ass shit and the twins basically mirror or echo him. And the kid's acting is fucking phenomenal. Yeah. Right. (laughs) The parents and Thomason continue to pray over Caleb as this is happening. And the chanting just stops and Caleb begins to just pray for a second. And he reaches praying ecstasy, apparently, is all I can call it, (laughs) because he gets really into it, and he reaches into the sky and then just collapses dead. And the twins are on the ground breathing heavy and will not get up at this point. And uh, Catherine yells to Thomason to fucking leave, right? And and, and the father follows Thomason. A funny note from the commentary was that apparently the the kid that played Jonas would always want to suck on hard candy, and Robert would tell him, you got to get rid of that shit, right? Like in between scenes. And I think if it wasn't the scene, it was another scene where he's supposed to be laying asleep. But I, I feel like it was this one. Anyways, he's laying and every time they're trying to film, he's just sucking on this piece of candy. And he's like, I already swallowed it. It's not my mouth. And they, you know, action. And you can see him sucking on it again. And eventually Robert just stuck his fucking fingers in there and pulled the fucking candy out and chunked it. <laughs> but anyways, outside we see William approach Thomason and he tells her his plans for the farm. And... He wants Thomason to just go ahead and confess to being a witch if she is one now, right? And she denies it, and she lets her dad have it for lying about the cup and letting her take the blame and letting her take the blame for all the kids and and basically lets him know he's being a fucking hypocrite. And then she lets him know, I want you to talk to the twins because they say the goat talks to them. And Mercy did come out and tell me she was the witch of the woods. And she says, we all know Lucifer appears as a goat on earth. Right? Like, this all makes sense. <laughs> I, I think the devil's up. living among us right now. And uh, everything she says is making sense. And at this point, we quickly dive into the third act. And and William takes Thomason in to tell her mother, which she just told him. And she says the twins made a pact with the devil goat, and it's all their fault. And there's a lot of bickering over who did what. And basically, William gets sick of everyone's shit. And he locks his three remaining kids up into the uh, the goat barn, right? Yep. With Black Phillip and the other goats. And he nails them in, fucking Night of the Living Dead style. Because <laughs> he doesn't know who the fuck to believe. So he's just going to stick the goats and the kids out there and his wife here. And uh, Black Phillip's just chilling in there with him. And chops some wood. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, <laughs> I, I haven't brought that up. He chops wood. 
constantly through this movie anytime he's mad. And if you pay attention, there's a giant pile of chopped wood next to the house and it grows throughout the movie. Yeah. And that's how he lost weight to look like he was starving for this movie. So that's kind of funny. It's like just a giant rotating inside joke. <laughs> but inside the barn, Thomason's looking at the twins and Black Phillip and she looks at her sister and she says, does the goat really speak to you? Because she wants to fucking know at this point, right? And uh, we see William and Catherine outside burying their son. And after they bury Caleb, and, and there's like a heart-wrenching scene of Catherine crawling in the hole with Caleb, you know, before they, they throw the dirt in. And it, it, it's sad. And Robert said that all the cast members like crying on set when they filmed the scene because it was just fucked up. Right? Okay. <laughs> um, but but at, after they bury him, William once again goes to angrily chop some wood. And then he chunks the axe and he drops to his knees and he prays for forgiveness for being so prideful. And he wants the Lord to take him away and save what's left of his children because he thinks it's what he's done that has caused all this. And he's damned them all. This next part cuts between the shack and and the house a lot. So I'm going to try to explain it in a way that makes sense, but not necessarily how it was uh, edited. Okay. All right. But that night we see Catherine wake up and she finds her silver wine cup sitting on the shelf where it was supposed to be. And Caleb sitting in a chair rocking Samuel. And Caleb lets his mom know that he wants her to come with him. And she says, oh, okay, but I need to feed Sam first. He's hungry. But outside, the kids hear a thud on or in the shack and then a slurping sound. And we see an old naked witch sucking the blood out of one of the goats in the corner of the shack with them. Inside, we see Catherine laughing hysterically as she's breastfeeding a crow that she thinks is Sam. And it's ripping her nipple off, basically. Okay. Yeah. It was a trained bird and a prosthetic tit obviously and it, it's pulling the uh the nipple off i do want to say i don't know if you noticed i noticed but not specifically what the problem was until i heard robert egger say it but when the camera pans around to caleb sitting in the rocking chair with sam it goes out of focus really bad at the last second uh-huh and uh the the head camera guy like just just cried and complained to robert that he fucked up the shot so bad. He didn't mean to do it. They had to get the movie out to Sundance. They couldn't reshoot that scene. I don't know if the set was gone. He fucked up. And Robert's like, the timing's perfect. It actually makes the scene fucking creepier because right now you're trying to figure out why is the cut there and why is Sam and Caleb here? Yeah. And I actually really like it, but that was a happy accident. Yeah. It makes you feel like you're being pulled from one thing to another. It totally worked. <laughs> had Robert Eggers never confessed that, we would have never known and just thought it was fucking genius. <laughs> But the next morning, we see William wake up by the daylight, and he crawls over his wife, who's faking like she's asleep. But clearly, nothing from the night before was a dream, because we can see blood stains on her shirt from yeah. where her nipples were chewed on. Robert Egger says it's his favorite scene in the movie, because that's the moment where William wakes up and looks around and goes, huh, shit's fucked. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but he goes outside, and he sees the shack torn up, Thomason passed out in the doorway, the twins missing. And dead goats laying everywhere, right? Yep. He's then surprised and gored by Black Phillip as he, as he rams him in the stomach. And William drops his knees, grabs his fucking trusty axe that he's been chopping wood with this whole movie, and looks at Black Phillip and says, fuck it. And he chunks the axe and, and goes in a prayer, right? Because he just gave up. He's like, fuck it, I'm going to go to heaven now. And Black <laughs> Phillip won't hear of his prayers and just whoops his ass into that giant log pile and kills him. Thomason goes to check on her father, and she's startled by her mother, who comes out, accusing her of being a witch, and says she even has her own sibling's blood on her hands, and the blood's actually the blood of her dad that she was just checking on, and Thomason tries to explain about how the witch landed on the shack and attacked him, 
until Catherine attacks Thomason herself and slaps her down the ground and starts to choke her to death. And, and basically Thomason's forced to defend herself with a spade and kill her mother, Night of the Living Dead style. <laughs> the end. That's it. Credits roll. Except for Jesse's line, like usual. And um, <laughs> we see Thomason embracing her mother because she's sad that she just had to kill her. She goes inside, takes off her bloody clothes, puts on some robes, and takes a little nap at the table until it's nighttime. We can hear chimes, and something wakes her up, and she looks around. So I don't know if she hears the chimes or if it's just the wind. Yeah. But something startles her, and she goes to investigate it. And we see Black Philip is waiting outside of the shack and leads her in. Okay? And she looks at Black Philip and asks him to speak to her. She wants him to speak to her like he did to her twin siblings. And, of course, it's a fucking goat. They don't speak. So she gets up and turns to leave. What dost thou want? The fuck? You just suddenly hear it behind you, so to speak. <laughs> she wants to know what gifts he can offer her. I got it all, baby. <laughs> exactly. And she wants to know what he wants in return. And he tells her to take a look at the book sitting on the table in front of her and to remove her clothes and sign her name. And if you pay attention, you can hear spurs and you can see a man walking in the background. And I think they even show his spurs and his black boots. And I'm like, fuck, it's the man in black from the Halloween series. <laughs> He's here in our fucking film. But no, it, it's the devil. And, and Robert Eggers was really proud of his costume. It's all black with gold on it and like peacock shit and like gold spurs on the boots and a fucking beaver cap. Just like all the old legends about how he would visit people back then. Yeah. You can't fucking see the guy. <laughs> Like, it's just so dark and you can barely make him out. But he went all in, even though he knew you couldn't see it, right? And he said it's the most handsome devil you would have ever saw if you could see him. <laughs> but uh, Thomason lets her know that she can't even write her own name. And he lets her know that he'll guide her hand. And then we see her walk naked off into the woods as Black Philip follows her. And as she goes further, she finds an entire coven of naked witches chanting and dancing around a fire. She approaches the fire as they all begin to float into the air. And she begins to laugh hysterically and also begins to float into the night sky. And basically, she's finally found a family that accepts her. Credits. Done. And the credit music here, Robert Egger says he enjoys more than the entire fucking movie. <laughs> Make that what you will. Okay. I do want to say, I didn't go into the specifics of what, what the devil said, but it was something, you know, do you, do you fancy a nice dress, the taste of butter, blah, blah, blah. Those were all lines he found, Robert had found from old text. Okay. Talking about the devil visiting people. And he's like, it's got to go in. It's got to go in. You know what I mean? Because like, <laughs> this guy does everything so historically accurate. Yeah. And some people don't call this movie a horror movie. I think it's a really good witch movie. Some witch movies go over the top. I really like the setting of it. I think the setting really added to the movie, almost like a character, like, like the whole Puritan setting, the, the creepy woods was a character. I feel like all the actors were perfectly chosen. Maybe not the twins, but they were fucking annoying as hell. Maybe that was the intention, <laughs> right? But like Pops is fantastic as this old Puritan, you know, family leader. And he was probably a church elder at some point. And, and the mom just plays a crazy distraught woman. Yeah. Tony Collette probably could have done it better, but that's because Tony Collette's <laughs> one of the greatest fucking actresses of all time. Okay. But oh. she was fantastic. I love Anya in the movie and Caleb doesn't have a whole lot to say, but what he, what he says is there, but the movie definitely has creepy imagery without giving you bullshit jump scares and horrific monsters. I mean, just the baby missing the creepy woods, how creepy the fucking houses are. 
occasionally a crone's hand or body part. Like it's the scariest things you've seen, <laughs> but this is a good period piece style horror movie. And I really can't think of another movie I've seen that was done in the past setting and come off as so realistic and authentic. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I see where you're coming from. It, it, it really does take you there. Like, I hate to say, I don't hate to say this. It's, it's like what the village thought it was going to be. You know what I mean? Um, right. That's the only way I could put it. And yeah, everybody's good in it. And uh, after going back and rewatching it, I feel kind of bad for ragging on it when it was brought up earlier in the podcast. It was a slow burn for me the first time I watched yeah. it. Now through this podcast, I'm getting to more where I let atmosphere take me there. Yeah. Actually, it's only most recently. Like, it's yeah. fucking Ari Aster, man. <laughs> I, I think I did it to you with Ari Aster. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. And you could have told me Ari Aster made this movie, and I think I would have believed you. There's, It's so interesting that this came out before. They're so similar, <laughs> yet yet different uh, in certain ways. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't say that anything's a carbon copy. But it, it is an enjoyable witch film, and I, I'm glad to cover it under a Robert Eggers episode and not a witch episode. Like, I, I feel like yeah. I needed to, to live here because I think it might have been out of place with other witch films because they're kind of their own. Witches are kind of like a corny thing sometimes the way they're done. And in a lot of horror movies, flashback scenes come off terrible. And th <laughs> this movie managed to do it just like his second film, The Lighthouse, that he made in 2019. Yeah, the movie that teaches us you don't fuck with one-eyed seabirds and if you use enough honey, you can drink lamp oil. <laughs> so this was, of course, written and directed by Eggers with a little bit of writing help from his brother, Max. No shit. Eggers did this one, too. He did, man. It's like we got <laughs> oh, a theme shit. going through the whole fucking episode. <laughs> I'm glad we put these movies on the same one. <laughs> oh, so we've got Willem Dafoe as Thomas Wake. Oh, boy, do we? <laughs> He's been in what, like 167 movies. Do I really got to go through all this? Absolutely none of them. Just remember, there was a fire fight and you're good to go. That's, I think of that platoon and then he's the Green Goblin and Spider-Man. And that's all I need in my memories are those things. And that last one is what makes the easy joke here because we've got Robert Pattinson as Thomas Howard. So there you go. We, we've got we got Batman there, too. <laughs> he's also i didn't know this but he's in the new christopher nolan movie tenant that's coming out soon like he's like the i think he's the fucking one of the stars of it oh, okay and i'm so pumped for that movie and then we've also got uh valeria caraman as the mermaid and this is the only thing she's ever been in her imdb doesn't even say anything about her it's like here's her name she's been in this movie click on something else <laughs> i actually expected you to only do the two actors for your entire cast and i was gonna make a joke about your two-person cast and then you randomly put the model in that they got to lay down with the fucking mermaid vagina on i went for it i'm gonna break down the theories before the movie so we don't ping pong through them while we're going through the movie um some of these being fan theories that i've run across some of them being absolute nods that either duh or Eggers actually alludes to in interviews because he, he doesn't like to answer questions. You know, I, I saw him in some interviews were like, hey, I saw this. And was there symbology about that in an interview? And he's like, I think you should watch the movie again. 
<laughs> he does like to answer questions. So I've seen him very open ended answer questions. I, I feel it's like the hair though. Like why, what, what's yeah. up with the rabbit Google hairs and witches. <laughs> and I think it's cause like, it's the history teacher in him. He wants you to go learn, right? Like all about it. And if it's just like something he can easily explain, he does it. So we've got something I ran across in my research because I'm not well-read enough to have come up with any of this shit. So let me preface everything I'm about to say with that. (laughs) So the idea of it toying with things that Carl Jung wrote about, which um, we're going into psychological stuff, and the, the water surrounding the lighthouse represents the unconscious mind, and that the anima, which is the female psychological tendencies within man, is represented by the mermaid. And that's just one of the things being played with in the movie. So there's the idea is Howard just stuck in his mind battling with his feminine side because there's a lot of nods in that direction. Well, isn't he called Ephraim, though, for like most of the movie? (laughs) You mean when he's not being called lad boy and dog? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's since they're both Thomas when it finally comes down to it. I just went with their last names. Okay, if that's how you do it, it, it's just easier for me that way. You just spoiled the entire plot twist. <laughs> I'm going to preface this with Small's Lighthouse Tragedy, too. And so then I have to bring up the name Thomas there. So, ah, okay. okay. <laughs> we got Willem and Rob. I do want to say <laughs> Robert Eggers said there were six Roberts or Robs working on this movie. <laughs> you know, you had the director slash writer. You had one of the two stars. And then you have like the DP and I don't remember who all it was, but they're all, so you're like, Hey Rob. And everybody's like, huh? (laughs) I'm fat Rob. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Then we get into where shit gets interesting. Proteus and Prometheus. So it seems we've got wake representing Proteus because we've got a Greek God of the sea. Who's a keeper of knowledge and he's the keeper of the lamp and he, he won't let the, the dog boy anywhere near the lamp. And then we've got Prometheus being represented by Thomas Howard because he wants nothing more than to get to the lamp. And of course, the story of Prometheus is he's the one who stole fire and gave it to humans. And his punishment was to be strapped to a fucking rock for all of eternity and have an eagle eat his liver. And then every night his liver would grow back so an eagle could come and eat his liver again. (laughs) And all that's going to come up throughout this movie. (laughs) And and I just want to let you know there, I did see in an interview and I... I wanted some clarity on this movie, so I actually watched the commentary on this one, even though it wasn't my film. (laughs) You never do that. You finally did. (laughs) I finally did it. That is exactly what Robert was doing. Yeah, yeah. He even has Willem Dafoe look like Proteus during part of the movie, but he he said he knew that they never crossed paths in mythology, but boy, would it be neat if they did. (laughs) Yeah. He made it happen. (laughs) All that I'm totally down with. There's other people that have said, you know, is it just two men stuck in hell or purgatory? I think that's oversimplification. What I really like that some people say is, is there really only one Thomas? And we're watching him dive into full-blown insanity. Ooh, that's interesting. If you look at Small's Lighthouse tragedy, that makes a lot more sense. At the end of the day, you got two guys isolated in cramped quarters going fucking insane. <laughs> On to some behind-the-scenes stuff um, before I get into the movie. Um, It was shot in the nearly square aspect ratio of 1.19 to 1. One, because that was period accurate, and two, Mm -hmm. to give a claustrophobic feel. I love it. 
I'm fine with it being square. I don't get the claustrophobic feel. I feel like if we would have gotten more shots of stationary, there are a lot of good shots of stationary cameras to help with that, but stationary cameras up in corners, just like a Resident Evil game. I, I know I keep bringing up Resident right. Evil. Here, I'm like, but, you, but in all seriousness. I didn't get the claustrophobic feel at all, but I, I dug the aspect ratio, making it look like old timey pictures and, and like stop motion footage and see, right? Of yeah. sailors and it's stuff. It's like, fucking, you stayed up too late and Masterpiece Theater comes on. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> of course, some of the lenses that were used to give this thing the right look were over a hundred years old. Again, very true to historical accuracy, researching the dialect for both characters. He actually, him and his brother ended up having to write a book alongside of the movie of everything they had to keep track of for accuracy because that <laughs> came first. Definitely inspired by Small's Lighthouse tragedy. So in 1801, we had two wikis, both named Thomas, were working the lighthouse and one of them died in a freak accident. And while the other one was waiting for the next crew to come get him, he stuffed his corpse in a makeshift coffin and set it on a shelf outside. I'm presuming because of the smell eventually. Right. And a strong wind came through, destroyed the coffin and left the body kind of dangling there. And he said later that the wind would blow and that the arm would kind of do the come hither thing in the window while he's staring out at this dead body. And then his friend said this, fuck this guy for life. Um, they changed policy after this incident that they had to work in crews of three. Oh, but yeah, this this tragedy of the one guy dying, the other guy going a little crazy, both named Thomas, that leads okay. to the idea of maybe this is just one person going insane after killing the other one. I, I do know there was like an old black and white silent film in a lighthouse as well, and, and he took a lot of... I wish I could remember the name, <laughs> but he, he he took a lot of influence from that as well. But I'm assuming that was probably more like the the look and the framing, yeah, than the plot. If I had to guess, but I like that he takes his inspirations once again. It was from history, even though it was a film. It was like an old film, right? Yeah. Two more quick things. Pattinson had actually previously turned down a role offer from Eggers because yes. it wasn't weird and challenging. This was. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he he fucking told him to pack sand on whatever <laughs> his second movie was gonna be, and then when he this was the one that the studios paid for him to make a movie for, he's like, oh, I got him now. <laughs> and I'm glad you brought that up because what's funny is the 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 seed for this movie actually started before the witch, but all he had was a ghost story in a lighthouse. That's all he had. <laughs> yep. And it ends up not even really being a ghost story. He apparently actually has a lot of films that he wrote. And it's just, this is the order that just happened to get bought and come out. Okay. <laughs> and one more thing, the Lovecraft thing. He yep. did get asked about that in an interview. And he said he didn't want the film to end up going that route because he felt it would answer questions instead of leaving questions open. And okay. that's part of his shtick. Um, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Let it rip, Josh. I'm just I'm just thinking about okay, so the wife watched this movie without me before we were ever gonna do it on the podcast. And I'm like, how was the lighthouse? And she goes, Man, it's all about William Defoe and Robert Pattinson wanting to fuck each other. <laughs> Jesus, I did not get that vibe at all. Oh, so with that in mind. So we open with a foghorn, and the foghorn, I'm gonna sit here, I'm gonna stay here for a minute. It's a fucking character in the movie unto itself. Yes. Even even watching the movie in 1.6 speed, it is still a slow, droning, ominous fucking thing. It is a recording of a real foghorn in the mm -hmm. UK that was 
altered the the tone and you know pitch shifted and shit for the movie, but it but they did start from a real one. And so off in this fog, we see a ship, and then we're on the ship, and we see that there's two men on board that can see the lighthouse off in the distance, and uh, they make their way on shore, and uh, Thomas Howard makes his way upstairs, and as he makes his way upstairs, we can hear water running. At least that's what we think we're hearing. I love this shot. And uh, <laughs> he goes over to his bed and he unrolls it and he sits down on it. And there's like a chimney or a support right in the middle of the frame, like blocking something. And uh, as soon as he sits down, you hear a fart and see a little bit of an ass from behind that right in his face and a chamber pot being kicked away. And you realize you've been listening to someone take piss right there in the middle of the room. It, it is fucking hilarious, especially the fart. The farts are a fucking character onto themselves. <laughs> so. Howard then picks at a hole in his mattress and he finds a mermaid scrimshaw. Now that's a word I came across that I didn't know before. And so if you've got carvings, you know, typically on like bone or tusk and stuff like that, that's what this is. And, uh, it's the closest thing to a woman he's going to get to for a while. Either one of them for that matter. So over dinner, cause there's going to be this reoccurring thing of the, the male dominant ego struggle. And it, it starts pretty quickly. But over dinner, Howard doesn't want to drink, like at all. But Wake tells him it's bad luck to leave a toast unfinished. And this is one of those where I'm not going to try to do voices. Thank God for subtitles, because <laughs> you talked about what's his nuts in the witch. If I tried to watch this movie without subtitles, half of the shit, I'd be like, dude says dog a lot. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a scene in the movie, and I'll let you know when you get there, where Robert Eggers says, thank God for subtitles, because everybody <laughs> thinks Rob's saying gibberish, and he's actually reciting an old Canadian lumberjacking song. Okay. So he also tells him that he's going to tend to the cleaning and the maintenance, and that he'll tend to the lamp himself. And so that's already set up. You're the bitch. I'm the captain. And that's their positions, right? Like, cause he is like the, cause the, the lighthouse, you, you see the initials over everything because there was an actual military branch for the lighthouses really. Right. And he is like the commanding officer, so yes. to speak. Yeah. yeah. He's I'm the captain. You're the lackey deal with it. But he's like, oh, but the manual says he's like, what else do they say in the manual? <laughs> but that's <laughs> later on. <laughs> it comes up there because he says the manual says we're not allowed to drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he tells him, like, all the bullshit jobs he's going to do. And he's like, or did you not read that part of the menu? <laughs> so very soon after this dinner scene, we see a wasted, naked wake toasting the lamp. <laughs> like, out of nowhere. Like, this is what this guy does up there. This, this must be why he's up there by himself, because this is, this is his special time. Meanwhile, Howard makes his way down to the shore for the first of many hallucinations. Or is it? Because he sees logs start showing up in the water and then a dead body. And he goes down into the water and under the water and then he sees a mermaid. But then he wakes up. So was it all a dream or in his head or did it happen? (laughs) But he wakes up to water dripping on his head. And as he's waking up, Wake is getting into his bed and tells him that he needs to tend to the shingles and his other chores. (laughs) And that the lamp needs oil. And he probably farts a few times. There's a lot of farting in this movie. He starts tending to his chores, and as he's replacing the shingles, he's peering down, and he can see Thomas Wake humping his bed. He may be jerking at the same time. I don't know. It's dark. A little while after this, while he's going throughout his day, he heads over to the foghorn with the wheelbarrow full of coal, and he's confronted by the seagull. Now, this seagull contains the soul of One-Eyed Willie. Actually, (laughs) it's the soul of the previous wiki, but we'll get to that later. But it is a one-eyed seagull. By the way, for anyone who doesn't know what a wiki is, like me, 
<laughs> when I saw this movie, it it's basically uh, slang for someone who tends to the lamp because the back back then this is literally a burning fire <laughs> in a lamp like an old school lantern. So there's a wick and you know that whole setup. So wiki is what they get called. But um, he ends up shooing the bird away by throwing a lump of coal at it. Foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> he's also caught yeah he sees him in the distance and uh we cut to him continuing to do his chores and he's dragging this big ass jug of oil up to the top of the lighthouse even though there's these chains dangling down the middle <laughs> does it look like that's probably a winch system that's what i thought when i saw it <laughs> i didn't catch the winch system but i immediately thought why wouldn't you just use a pulley to get it up there and then willem dafoe lets him have it in a second and you know how he was supposed to do it <laughs> And it ruins both of our ideas. <laughs> he gets up there. He's like, catch your breath, boy. <laughs> and he hands him this small ass little oil jug. And he's like, you use this. Now take that back down there. <laughs> yeah, You're supposed to take this thing that you oil the tin man from Wizard of Oz with downstairs and then fill it up with the keg. But uh, fucking old Rob brought the whole fucking keg up 47 flights of stairs. So over presumably the next dinner, but over dinner, we've got Howard being real reluctant to talk like wakes like, you know, fucking, you know, this is this is boredom. You know, this is what what sailors have had to deal with. Drinks, the only medicine that, that keeps shit going. You got to talk to me, boy. He pushes and pushes. And so he asked what happened to the previous wiki. Died. Went mad. He did. Howard, in response, scoffs at wakes, quote unquote, tall tales. And uh, wake says, you know, I saw what you did with that seagull. And uh, it's best you just leave it be. It's bad luck to kill a seabird. And Howard's like, ah, more tall tales. And Wake just fucking belts him. <laughs> and he repeats himself. <laughs> it's bad luck to kill a seabird. It really is, man. The fucking, the, the seagull is the harbinger. And the seagull, there's three of them. If I remember right, their names were Lady, Tramp, and Johnny. And one of them was the cackler. One of them was the pecker. And one of them was the don't I look good on film uh, <laughs> or some shit like that. Every shot you see with flocks of seagulls flying in the background, no matter how picture perfect it was, not a single bit of CGI to Adam. Oh, really? Just happened. He says because they were used to getting fed by the people while they were there. So as soon as they show oh. like even even the first scene you see of the lighthouse in the living quarters when they get off the boat, you can see all these birds flocking everywhere and, and he's like it's so picture perfect you think i cgi'd it but they were just ready to get fed again and they saw <laughs> us walking up and they just got excited and i didn't have to cgi it so and that makes sense because of how this was done everything you see they fucking built the quarters mm -hmm. the lighthouse and they did it in an outcrop into the ocean in nova scotia now there was some stuff done on sound stages later on like the interior of the lighthouse and some stuff that you think is outside that was actually done on sound stages and then composited into the other right. shit. And I do want to say there are plenty of recorded scenes inside the lighthouse that was actually inside the constructed lighthouse as well. Yes. He complains about his historical accuracy fucking his better camera angles throughout the movie because he's like, I had to get too close and I should have been further away, but I couldn't do it because my goddamn historical accuracy of the stairwell. Yeah, well, that coupled with the big ass fucking, they shot it on 35 millimeter black and white. So he's got that yes. with these old fucking lenses hanging off the front. Uh, <laughs> glutton for punishment, that man. Got to admire him for that. <laughs> but later that night, We've got a seagull pecking at the window, waking Howard up. He looks over at the window. He looks over at the scrimshaw and he rubs one out. 
because that's what you do. You're fucking bored. I mean, I've never had a life <laughs> at, at sea or stuck on a fucking rock, but I can understand this. <laughs> so he heads out for a smoke afterwards and he sees Wake dressing himself once again up at the lamp. And so more of, man, what is this guy doing up there at the lamp? It's like he's toasting it. He's naked. What's going on? So the next day, Wake tells Howard he's been neglecting his work. And he doesn't just tell him that he's been neglecting his work. He's, he goes on this thing about, I told you to swab the fucking floor. He's like, I did. And he's like, well, you didn't do a good enough job. You're going to swab it again. <laughs> and he calls him a dog. And that's what he's been doing. He's calling him boy. He's calling him lad. He's calling him dog. And just just berating him and belittling him. And uh, Howard finally grows a backbone at this point. And uh, he says he didn't sign up for this to be a housewife nor a slave. <laughs> and then Wake <laughs> really fucking lays into him. And if I tells you to yank out every single nail from every mold and nail hole and suck off every speck of rust till all them nails sparkle like a sperm whale's pecker and then carpenter the whole light station back together from scrap and then do it all over again, you'll do it! So as the days move on, Howard starts to submit and we, we get kind of a montage of him just doing his fucking chores with a smile and, you know, farty mcshit face is just there all the time (laughs) and uh this leads us up to the whitewashing incident so wake has is holding howard over the edge on this little wooden swing rope contraption and he's whitewashing the lighthouse and uh he tells him he's doing a great job and then he's been earning high marks in his logbook and uh they get to a quick little spat about stop moving i'm not moving stop moving i'm not moving i'm gonna (laughs) fall stop moving and he fucking falls and it's it's almost feels like they've come to find their place and like we're going to get the buddy comedy right. part of the movie. And it just it shows that nothing, nothing they think they hold to me, at least nothing they think they hold together is real, because even in an instant of thinking it's OK, it falls apart. I have no clue if that was the point in that scene or not. <laughs> <laughs> I did at that point also feel like they were bonding father son like a bit more. Yeah. Of course, he wakes up to a seagull pecking at his leg. I do want to point out right there that this scene, I feel like, leads to a lot of the conspiracy theories on heaven, hell, purgatory, one man going insane, any of that, because you can see that it's almost nightfall and that Ephraim was just left on the fucking ground, right, by old Tom. (laughs) He didn't even go check on him. And never again in the movie do you see them address the whitewashing of the lighthouse, and it's only partly whitewashed for the rest of the movie. But he's so like, oh, I got to be on my job, right? Willem Dafoe's character is. And it's like, why did it just get left that way? Yeah, that's interesting. I do also want to point out that you see an actual seagull take a real shit on Rob Pattinson in that scene. Oh, that is great. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Later at dinner, Howard says he wants to be called by his real name for their last two weeks on the island and his real name being Ephraim Winslow, because until now he's only been called boy, lad, dog that they, they kind of like actually chat. And, uh, cause he's a fucking old Thomas <laughs> it even starts being nice to him. He's like, Oh, so tell me Ephraim or don't they actually pronounce the fucking name wrong? <laughs> no, no, no. So they say Ephraim in the movie, the way it's spelled, I would have said Ephraim. Yeah. And Robert Eggers said that him and his brother wrote the character as Ephraim. And when they were meeting with the dialect coach, because everything's got to be historically accurate, the dialect coach is like, you know, you're saying the fucking name wrong, right? (laughs) Because he had seen the name written many times and he liked it and he wanted to use it. But he pronounced it Ephraim in his head. 
Ah. So in, in this moment of seeming to bond, Wake asks, well, how did you end up here? And he says that he used to be a timberman and he read these books that a wiki could make a lot of money and that the farther away, more remote areas that the lighthouse were, there was even more money. And, you know, that was his dream. He was going to go somewhere, make a bunch of money and then settle up his own house on his, in his own piece of land. And, uh, <laughs> and Wake's just like, yeah, same as everybody else. Like, he, he's like, he acts <laughs> like he gives a shit about his story. He tells his story and he's like, yep, yep. Nothing interesting there. <laughs> He's such a dick to him, and he's so passive-aggressive about it at times. So Howard eventually says, you know, since they're actually talking, kind of, why is it bad luck to kill a seabird? And Howard says, they contain the souls of dead sailors. And somewhere in here, and I did not note it, and I may be ahead of myself, but there's, I think it's already happened. He asks about the previous junior wiki that was working with him, and it gets brought up that he only had one eye, because that becomes important later. Anyways, so work continues until one night Howard realizes that he left his smokes out of the lighthouse because he's always fucking smoking like that's right. his thing. You know, wake fucking drinks and Howard fucking smokes. That's what they and do. And he had to learn how to roll cigarettes just for this movie. Oh, nice. So he goes out to get his kit and uh, he hears wake grunting up above in the top of the lighthouse. So he slowly starts making his way up the stairs to investigate. And as he makes it, because you've got like a landing at the top and then a locked hatch to get up to the actual lamp. So when he's at the quote unquote top, he's still under the lamp. Because I think he got busted earlier in the movie, right? Because he snuck up in the stairwell and he got to that latch. And that's when he got caught by Willem Dafoe, right? Yeah, when he was carrying the the jug up there. But uh, as soon as he gets up there, he gets jizzed on. Well, at least that's what I thought at first. I literally thought that's what was <laughs> happening. But then we get a shot up and it's like, oh, no, it's just some goo coming from some tentacles. Release the Kraken. <laughs> right on. This makes total sense at this point. This is the point in the movie where I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm watching. now. <laughs> I mean, I really didn't know what was going on. <laughs> and apparently the poor cameraman shot that scene many times and he got gooped on every time. <laughs> but, uh. He's like, okay, I'm peacing out. The next day, Howard is going to do one of his many. There's always something wrong with the cistern. Their water's fucked. And he's always having to go out and put Red X right. in the fucking cistern. So it's chalk specifically. That's what you would put in there to try to clean it up. Okay, cool. And and, and it, it's really funny because he's been trying to drink water this whole time. Yeah. When when old Tom's trying to drink booze and the water, I mean, apparently tastes like an asshole. (laughs) And and he can't drink it. So he just wants his fucking water to be clean. His water and his smokes, man. (laughs) So he's doing his thing at the cistern and that damn seagull comes up to annoy him again. One eyed Willie. And this time he's had enough and he grabs the poor bird by its legs and just relentlessly beats it into the side of the cistern until it is a (laughs) bloody mass of feathers. It's fucking awesome looking. Yeah. And it's a combination of a puppet and CGI. And that is some seamless looking shit. <laughs> Robert Eggers says it's the one scene in the movie that makes him regret his choice to do it in black and white because he said it was so fucking awesome <laughs> seeing the blood everywhere. <laughs> so shit gets real. We get a quick pan up to the top of the lighthouse and see the weather vane whip around and hold steady real quick clouds roll in Uh uh-oh he's done angered the fucking gods (laughs) um we don't know that but we're about to 
And uh, they prep the island for the, the coming storm, boarding up windows and shit. And they pull up a lobster pot and they're going to have fucking lobster for dinner. And it's their last night before they get picked up. So they're going to get hammered which they do. It's rinse and repeat on some of these, but it's ever escalating a little bit of bonding, a little bit of arguing, but nothing ever really comes to a head. It fizzles out before it gets bad or they pull apart before they get buddy, buddy. And I do want to say this is the first time Ephraim drinks. Yeah. So after a night of getting hammered, we move on to the next day. Howard's walking. I don't remember if he's doing another trip with the coal out to the foghorn or not. I think he is, but uh, he sees something washed up on the shore and he gets a little bit closer and it's a hot chick. Like, here he is, fucking been all alone, and here's this hot chick. And he starts pulling the, like, seaweed and trash away from her face, gives her a Joe Biden hello all up on her boobs and stuff. But as his hands continue to go down, she's got fucking scales and shit. She leans up and lets out this smiling, screechy laugh thing, and then we get a wider shot of him tearing ass away and her tail flopping while she's sitting there laughing. It's like, oh, shit, it's the mermaid that he saw underwater earlier in the movie. Right. So later, the men just stand on the shore with their bags packed and shit in this heavy ass <laughs> fucking rain, waiting for the boat to come. But the boat never comes. <laughs> I do want to point out that almost every time in the movie they're hit with heavy ass rain, it's Robert Eggers with a fire hose. Oh, really? Fucking letting her rip. <laughs> Especially on Rob Pattinson. And there's a scene coming up where Rob was heard. After the shot saying, I'm going to break his fucking nose if he does it to me again. So <laughs> apparently it got rough. But apparently the one scene right here that you're talking about where they're standing there on the shore and just getting hammered by rain was not a fire hose or CGI. That was natural rain. Oh, nice. And he decided to fucking keep it because it looked too good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that sucks. If you think <laughs> that's like the worst filming conditions ever. So they, of course, go inside and the storm continues to pick up around them. They end up figuring out that rain's gotten into the provisions, gotten into the food, gotten into the rations. Like, fuck. This is when shit starts to get a little weird if you start paying attention to the conversations. Because yeah. Wake ends up right after this when he's talking about the provisions, um, says to Howard that they've been stuck there for weeks. But Howard doesn't believe him and that he's been telling him all these weeks we have to be rationing. You know, it's like, no, you're just, it, it starts going to this thing of like, oh no, you're just trying to trick me. And it's like, no, you've gone mad, but you can sit there and look at it from both points of view, trying to figure out which one of them is actually going mad. In my opinion, especially when, when we get to the ax part. It's, it's really well done because this is, it, this starts from the moment that Ephraim starts drinking. Right. Yeah. And, and even then he gets a lecture right there and he says, what are you talking about? That was just yesterday. And that's when old Tom tells him, weeks, lad, it's been weeks. I've been telling you to ration. And every day you tell me you're just going to go out on the boat and get help, right? <laughs> and um, let me take the dory out. Yeah, yeah, the dory. Thank you. So Wake starts talking about, you know, back in whatever year, this guy got stuck, blah, 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 yada, 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 in a storm for seven months. And we, we got to dig up the rations. <laughs> Let's go dig up the rations. And they go digging by the lighthouse and they find the rations. And much to Howard's chagrin, it's booze. <laughs> <laughs> so with nothing else left to do, they get shit faced and they end up getting in a <laughs> They end up getting into a fight because Howard won't say that he likes Wake's lobster. <laughs> oh, my God. This isn't the fight here, but this scene is so dramatic. Oh, it's so good. And uh, Wake gets so pissed that he gives this is the fucking 
delivery of the movie when he goes on his rant that begins with hark triton hark and i'm not going to go through the whole thing i wanted to put the clip in here and just say listen to the man go but it's so fucking long it's so long (laughs) if you haven't watched this movie first off go watch the fucking movie second of all you can you can look up this clip on youtube it's fantastic (laughs) um but he goes into very vivid detail about his desire for Howard to be stabbed and torn apart until what's left of him in his soul becomes part of the sea. In a nutshell, I'm really watering it down <laughs> without blinking the entire time, even though they cut the camera away from him to rob. And he knew that. And he decided to still not blink to just keep it going. Oh, it's very, it goes into mythology and and sailor lore and it's just so serious. And then you have Rob come back in. Well, and then you've also got him. He's calling out, you know, Hark Triton Hark, which would be because if he represents uh, Proteus, that's the brother of Triton. Right. Yeah. So like he's calling to his brother, you know, come up from the sea and take him, stab him, you know, because he's like, you know, Neptune, like this everything he says in this one gives so much credence to the whole idea of we really are looking at at proteus and prometheus it all comes together right there so i'm gonna go ahead and say we're gonna hit the third act here because howard looks to go into a drunken downward spiral of masturbation heads in lobster pots and visions of a man drowning in logs wait yeah did that head have one eye (laughs) it did (laughs) um it it took me a minute to even catch that I thought it was fucking uh, Thomas Wake's head that he just wanted him dead so bad that he was envisioning it in the lobster pot. I'm like, wait a minute. Oh, until he confronted him later? Yes. It's like, yeah, your previous wiki, one eye, the fucking seagull. Oh, I'm starting to understand the movie at this point. (laughs) There's so many Rob Pattinson montages where he (laughs) improvs a good bit. when you say the beat off scene or he's masturbating, is this when he's got the fucking hat on and he's holding the, the little mermaid statue? Yeah. And he breaks the scrimshaw first scene filmed. <laughs> Welcome to the set. Go play with yourself. <laughs> Robert Edgar said it was the most awkward scene. So you might as well get it out of the way. <laughs> Again, nothing left to do. They were supposed to be picked up. They ain't got no food. They're just going to fucking drink. And it's been days or weeks, depending on the perspective, right? (laughs) Exactly. So they end up drinking and partying so hard that they're slow dancing. Because this is this is when it shows them like they're doing like the the folk songs from of their people. You know, we got this the sea shanty and the timber song. You know, like they're they're really really going at it and dancing and hooking arm in arm. And then it just abruptly cuts to slow dancing, holding each other. Like (laughs) like oh man, this is when you break down with one of your bros and you're like, I love you, man. When, when Rob goes crazy singing really fast, that's the one where he's like, thank God for subtitles, because it sounds like he's speaking gibberish, <laughs> but it was actually a Canadian lumberjack song. Okay. And even with subtitles on, you hear, <laughs> I can't even make myself hear the words. I know. But uh, this shot is so intimate that they almost fucking kiss. Oh, yeah. Willem goes for it. and uh it turns into a fight instead and once they're gassed out and and just kind of chilling howard says his name's thomas which brings us back to why i've been saying howard and wake um 
And he explains that he watched Ephraim, who was his foreman, who always ragged on him and always called him a dog, die in a log jam. That he could have saved him, but he just stood there and watched it happen and basically stole his identity from that point. He, he got a clean slate after witnessing this happen. Yeah, because Tom had some discrepancies in his past, and he's now dead, basically, right? But mm-hmm. Ephraim, he was clean. Yep. I can be the new Ephraim, and I can move away, and I can make all this lighthouse money. Farther away the lighthouse, more money there is. Good thing he's getting high marks in that logbook. So later on, Howard has a vision of, and when I say later on, these really are abrupt cuts. The important takeaway here, though, is that old Tom keeps telling Ephraim to not spill the beans. He does not want him to spill the beans. <laughs> yeah, he's just sitting there constantly repeating it as he's telling the stories. Like, here's a little bit more to Don't spill the beans. Because <laughs> he's, like, he's exactly. almost passed the fuck out while he's saying it. <laughs> but we, we cut to Howard having, I'm going to say it's a vision because of all the shit that's fixed to happen. Um, but he's actually made it up on the deck of the lighthouse. Now, he's not inside with the lamp. He's outside. And there's this body laying there. And he rolls the body over. And it's himself. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he's grabbed by Wake, who's standing there, butt-ass naked, shining light out of his eyes onto uh, Howard's face. And it goes into this really weird framed shot, and it's like frozen. What is a admitted direct ripoff of a painting by Sasha Schneider called Hypnosis. You are correct, but it is called an homage when you admit it, do it on purpose. No, this this is this is flat out ripping it off. <laughs> I don't know why he did the the shot with with the painting other than he liked the painting. There's this whole rabbit hole you can go down about Shasha Schneider was gay um and was actually ran out of his own fucking country because of his work. The one thing I will say is the it, the light is like imparting knowledge and it's a great representation of the lighthouse in human form. And the passing of the torch or the even withholding of the torch and even just representing more longing of wanting to know what's so important about the lamp. And I really think that image just or that painting kind of summed up that idea. I have no idea if that's right. That's just my takeaway. It definitely sums up the idea, but I I really think Robert just did it because he thought it looked cool. (laughs) (laughs) So we get a quick cut to Howard trying to take the boat out like he was talking about always wanting to do. And he almost gets it out of the boathouse and launched, but Wake comes up and hacks up the back of it with an axe. Howard goes tearing off, running inside, as Wake gives chase with said axe. And as soon as they get inside, Howard says that he knows Wake killed his previous helper because he found his head in the fucking crab pot, lobster pot, whatever. And uh, Wake says, what are you talking about? You've gone mad. You just chased me with an axe. And that's because... As much as Robert Eggers says he he likes to keep it open for interpretation, he refers to Rob Pattinson's character as the unreliable narrator. Ah. During the uh, commentary, which is funny that you brought up Mr. Robot at the beginning, and this is what I was thinking. (laughs) So that leads me to believe that Willem Dafoe is right the entire movie, and it is Rob Pattinson who is incorrect the entire time. And if you think about it, other than I'm the captain and you're my subordinate, everything's normal to the first night he drinks. Yeah. The last night they're there. And from that point on, he becomes a raging alcoholic and has no fucking clue what's going on. 
Which kind of ties back to, you know, he's been a drifter and what did he used to do? Like, is, is this a known past issue of his like, no, man, when I drink bad shit happens. <laughs> is that why he didn't want to drink at the exactly. beginning? Why he fought it for the first uh, four weeks, right? Because he doesn't drink to their last night there. Well, so he went four weeks denying the rum and then he drinks it. Was, was he drinking a bit of the booze when uh, the real Ephraim slipped into the logs? One yeah. might wonder. Because he even says... Because doesn't he say something about how he was holding something and how he could have bashed him in the back of the head, but he didn't have to. The logs did it for him. Oh, yeah. He wanted to kill him anyways. And then he's like, oh, God took care of it. He didn't say that. But I mean, that's fate took care of it, if you will. So he probably did it. (laughs) Apparently, his certain point of view is not accurate whatsoever. (laughs) Now, I'm going to say they're both nanners at this point because of what they do next. (laughs) I think they're both crazy to an extent. Yeah. <laughs> they're out of booze and they mix honey with the fucking lamp oil and start drinking it. And there's no conversation about this or anything. They just start doing it. It was actually called thieves oil and it was an actual drink with turpentine and honey mixed together. And if you pay attention, Rob Pattinson actually says it's thieves oil when he passes it off to Willem Dafoe. Ah. But Robert thought it didn't sound right. And he actually cut the the audio out right there. Okay. Because he's like, he just ran. Because the way he shot it, he he blames himself. You just see him mix (laughs) the honey and he goes thieves oil and hands it off. And he's like, everyone's going to be like, what the fuck is thieves oil? (laughs) So they just cut it out and you're just like, oh, they're drinking it. But yeah. It's fucking turpentine and honey, and people used to actually do that shit. And uh, I bet it was bad for a lot of organs in your body that I can't name. I would bet. Can you imagine the runs the next day? Oh, I'm thinking about those chamber pots again. (laughs) They'd look a lot different. At some point earlier, I glossed over this. Howard had actually pocketed a knife from dinner. Mm, And mm. we've seen him try to go break into the top of the lighthouse. And we've seen him try to break into that, the captain's fucking cabinet thing that you're talking about from the very beginning of the movie. <laughs> he does successfully break into the cabinet, but the no logbook's book. missing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he actually goes upstairs and wakes falling asleep with it on his chest and he tries to sneak it away, but he wakes him up. He actually looks like he's about to stab a motherfucker to death in his sleep. Yeah. Yeah. That too. And he can't do it when he wakes up. <laughs> so they wake up the next morning after drinking the concoction. And the place is beyond thrash, like punk rock fucking kegger thrashed. Well, don't forget, there's a terrible storm the night before, and we see a wave slam into the lighthouse so hard it blows out the windows. And that's why it's so thrashed. And they actually used a wave machine and slammed a giant fucking wave into the house while they were in it and Belt took it out. And then he said a lot of people thought that we use CGI. Most people thought it was a miniature and we ran water over the miniature. But when you see that scene pulled out from the lighthouse and and the house and you see that giant wave come over the entire house and break through the windows, I actually shoved a fucking wave into the set. Well, the wave smashing into the place actually gives us the setup for what's about to happen because after, after waking up, Howard discovers uh, Wake's logbook while he's having a puke piss. Yeah, because just floating there, ready for the taking. <laughs> You've got the 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 chamber pots floating by, and he's pissing in it, and then just instantly drops down and starts puking. <laughs> but then the logbook comes floating by. <laughs> I love it though, because he should have pissed in a moving piss pot. <laughs> well, with the discovery of the logbook, 
he fucking grows a pair and like lays into Wake. He's like, you smell like shit and jism and I'm sick of your story and I'm sick of your goddamn farts. And his foreskin and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, he calls him schmegma and everything, man. <laughs> That's dick cheese for anyone who's wondering. <laughs> All does- the dialogue's accurate. <laughs> it's got to be historically accurate. Oh, it's one of the greatest rants ever. And if you haven't seen it, I urge you to look it up right now. Well, and it's his weird, it's his weird New England accent too. He's like, "Oh, I'm sick of your goddamn farts." <laughs> yeah, yeah. They smell like fucking tainted foreskin. <laughs> And it's funny because they purposely made him sound like a New Englander that had lived in Canada. Yeah. Like, it's that specific. From a British guy. I'm just saying. Great actor. (laughs) But he tells her, you know, every word, all his stories, everything out of his mouth is a lie. And he pulls out the logbook and recites the entries. And what Wake has basically written is that he sucks at his job and he recommends severance without pay. (laughs) Yeah, but if, if you listen to the grievances, it's drinking on the job, Everything not he's doing, doing what you're told, <laughs> trying to steal stuff, trying to break into stuff, and that really lends belief to the unreliable narrator hey. perspective. Because, I mean, one of them's crazy and the other one's telling the truth is all you can take from it. Interesting. But which one of them's telling the truth? And I think the uh, director accidentally spilled the beans. <laughs> when he called him an unreliable narrator. I love unreliable narrator stories, though. I think it makes the story more fun. Some people feel cheated, but I like it. Well, in response, Wake relieves him of his duties, and Howard immediately snaps and does a 180 and literally begs for two things. I want to see the lamp, and I want to have another chance to prove myself. Right. Because let's let's bring us back to the lamp. Because at this point in the movie, we've gotten kind of far away from the lamp. The lamp seemed real important in the beginning. Why are people getting naked and offering it drinks? <laughs> you know, where, right. what, what happened to that plot? And uh, Wake calls him out for being a whiny seagull killing bitch and calls him a dog some more. <laughs> That's pretty much his response. They throw down, but for real this time, like an actual fist fight. They're not both drunk as shit and goofing off. Right. This is this is hungover, but sober and fighting. And Howard starts to visualize Wake as all of his demons or weird thoughts, whatever, because he starts flashing back and forth between him and the mermaid and Winslow. And we already had uh, uh, the the flashing things in his head where uh, he was uh, fascinated about fucking the mermaid and we got to see the vagina and all that. And it's like, we're having this weird kind of trippy flashing thing happening in his head again. He's just wailing on him until wake finally cries out and submits. And Howard fucking puts on his suspenders. Like we saw wake doing when he was leaving the lighthouse that one time. And he's like, I'm the fucking man now. And you know, in his body language and he tells him bark like a dog. And I mean, yeah, uh, wakes just cowering in the fetal position and, and all but crying. And he woof, woof, like, yeah, dog bark dog. And, uh, it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, it it's, is. A, it's a power exchange, but it's, it's still like fat. Mike would love this. Um, I've read, <laughs> I've read so much about S and M in the past week, <laughs> but now the tables have turned and he fucking puts him on a leash 
and walks him outside and over to the lighthouse to the hole that they had dug to get the rations and throws his ass in there and starts hurling dirt on his face. And he starts, you know, one last time going back at him, talking shit to him again, you know, that, you know, you're a whiny bitch, a seagull killing, but he's not saying that he goes on these long diatribe soliloquy, whatever the way you're supposed to fucking pin this of like sea talk. I don't know any other way to describe it. He talks and, like uh, an old sailor. Yeah. And he's just fucking warning him like you'll rue the day, <laughs> like as he's burying him alive. And for a second, it looks like he takes pity on him and jumps down to save him. But no, he's just getting his fucking keys from him. Right. So after this release, this time it, it was uh, murder, not masturbation. Um, he goes for a smoke and uh, back inside the house and immediately wake comes flying through the door with that ax. And uh, Howard ends up spinning around, smacking him in the head with either a kettle or a chamber pot. Something gets the ax away from him and kills him. And it all happens that quickly. There's no drawn yep. out fight. It's just three hits and it's over basically. And, Howard makes his way up to the lamp and this part's weird to me because you're expecting some big mind fuck reveal and he just opens the lens so he can stare directly into the light smiles and lets out this distorted laugh scream thing and then falls all the way down the stairs. I've read stuff about this. I don't, I got nothing um, that is supposed to represent that he was being rejected by the light. I don't know because we immediately cut to him naked outside being pecked on by birds, which brings us back to the eating of the liver like Prometheus. Which and even as his intestines and shit are laying out all around him as the birds are. But he's clothed when he falls down the stairs. So the only part that doesn't make sense to me there is the fact that he's clothed versus not clothed. Um, the fire thing. Uh, my understanding from the commentary, it was done intentional and that was just supposed to be Prometheus stealing the fire. It's just like he was enlightened when he finally got it. And he likes to comment on how hard it is to actually scream like that. And <laughs> now he made Rob do that so many times. And, uh, and honestly, the distorted effect on it, the way they do it, it's very powerful. And then he, he basically, I'm assuming he's blinded from staring at this bright ass light. And that's why he falls down the stairs. Hey. The reason why he's naked is what doesn't make sense to me unless his clothes were just so damaged into rags as he fell and they crawled outside to safety and then the bird started just ripping them apart. That's all I got on that, but the naked part really doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, because it just fades to white because you got the, the, the light taking over the shot. I just want to say uh, the, the Willem Dafoe being buried alive and eating the dirt while he's talking, that was the day two of filming. I referred to earlier. <laughs> so day one was Rob Pattinson jerking off and making faces with a crazy hat on. Day two was Barry Willem Dafoe alive. And that is real dirt getting thrown in his mouth and his face. Nice. And he's laying in a, he said, you can't tell, but he's laying in a pool of water and they're in Canada. It's freezing. And that I think it was like two or three takes. And he's like, I'm, I'm just going to make this work. It, they all looked fantastic. I don't know what I have, but I can't put a 60 something year old man <laughs> in a freezing water and throw dirt in his mouth. Uh, anymore like this is wrong i can't do it <laughs> but willem dafoe never complained he just fucking did it well two things something i should have brought up earlier the bright light and that's it that's that's credits that's that's the movie but the bright light there at the end um 
because of the exposure and the light needed for this 35 millimeter film that they use, like they had like super fucking bright bulbs in the lamps that they're using that like crew members had to wear sunglasses on set because it was so fucking bright. And some of it, I think, is 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 overexposed. I think it would have felt more period if it was harder to see. Just personal nitpicking here. Yeah. Now, my, my nitpicking with the movie is let's let's get one thing right right out of the gate. Willem Dafoe does not exist. That fucking character is all that exists in this film. That is one <laughs> I there's I don't like the movie. I've this as an entertainment piece. There are elements of it that I like. There are elements of it that I totally respect. There are elements of it that I understand, but the, his performance is it, the movie could suck. And he's still, I've never at all the shit right. I watch, I've never seen anybody pour themselves into something like this one. It's just, it amazes me how, and it's, it's the fucking weird dialect too. It's like, it's so removed. It's such a character character <laughs> yeah. um, that blows my mind. And, you know, I even, did, even Rob as well. Well, that's what I was going like, to say. I didn't make a single sparkly vampire joke that entire fucking uh, movie review. <laughs> and trust me, Josh made plenty before we watched these movies. And I have seen Rob Pattinson in other films and in indie films and have seen him act. Josh has only seen his Twilight character. <laughs> no, no, no. This is the first thing I've ever seen him in. Oh, okay. I was just making the Twilight jokes because everybody else does. Um, and he was good too. Some of the accent, I don't, some of the accent threw me off, but Willem Dafoe's man lost at sea. <laughs> I buy it, man. <laughs> they were both fucking fantastic in it. And one more thing before I, I and then I'll get off of uh, Willem Dafoe's cock. Um, we've seen him play bad guy. He is, yeah. he is so good at bad guy. But this character is just dark in a way because he's bad guy and dark. And then anytime after the drinking starts, when Rob's character starts addressing things, he comes off as a normal. I'm just a, yep. I'm just an officer and a grandpa and the voice of reason. Yeah. Did he do the shit earlier? Probably not. No. But, but it's almost like you played two characters in the fucking movie. I don't even know if his character is drinking <laughs> in the film. <laughs> So I, I'm not going to beat a dead horse. Like I said, as, as an entertainment thing, it, it didn't get me, but I respect it. As far as Eggers goes, you know, he admits that he goes with, in this order, historical accuracy, atmosphere, and then story. And mm -hmm. that he gets crap about that. But the interview with him is like, look, I'm not Ari Aster, all right? <laughs> 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 Which I think is fun ribbing. But it's it, he takes these these pieces and puts them in a box and shakes them around. And this is what comes out more so in this movie than the witch. The witch feels like we've got a story weaved through it. This has a much looser story and, and he admits it. So I feel okay in, in saying that. And that's not his thing. Like I want to take you places and I want you to feel and see things the way they would really be. And I think he got thrown into all this too fast than he was ready for just watching how his body language and how he talks in interviews. And I hope he sticks with horror or comes back to horror because I think he's, he hasn't found his footing yet, is in my opinion, is what I'm getting at. He's already working on his next film, and he says it's his most gruesome picture to date for the, the work he was able to do uh, pre-COVID. But it's not a horror film. He very specifically said that, but it's called The Northman, and it's about a Viking which is horrific in its own way. <laughs> you can't tell a, a Viking story and not be violent and horrific. Yeah. It has to be brutal. And 
we're here to talk about the guy, and with his historical accuracy and his sense for telling the dark and portraying it, a fucking Viking movie sounds right up his alley to me. <laughs> yes. Now, with that being said, I enjoyed this movie more more than Josh did, which which is fine. <laughs> I, I still see lots of parallels with him and Ari Aster, though. Totally. Because I feel like Ari Aster did not explain any of the occult or Paimon stuff in Hereditary, and almost none of Midsummer is explained. But interest being peaked in that direction more, you kind of filled in the blanks yourself, right? And looked it up, whereas the sailor stuff in the Greek mythology might not have piqued you as much. And, and that's a great way to bring up, because my whole thing that was like Josh's mind blown is, you know, Midsummer is about a codependency relationship. And once I knew that, I watched the movie again, and I was like, I'm in fucking love. <laughs> and then Lighthouse, the movie about isolation. So if you go about it from that perspective, which we've all been isolated. Recently, yeah. right? But people into mythology probably get the movie the same way I did with with Midsummer, where I'm like, oh my right. god, this is this is fucking genius. I literally could have just watched the two guys go fucking crazy in the lighthouse and left out the mermaid and the mermaid fucking and and the fucking sea god. You could have taken all of that out of the movie. And I argue that I would probably even like the movie more than I did. And I liked it. The thing that I think would change it for me the most if it were different is even watching it at 1.6 X speed, there were still things that felt so drawn out. Like if you just crammed the movie into about 45 minutes, which you could easily do, it might feel totally different to me. Really? Yeah. And, but that's one thing you never know unless somebody hacks something up and you watch it. And by then it doesn't matter. You've already watched it. It doesn't have the impact, but yeah, parallels to Aster all day long. Yeah. Which is very interesting. This guy, regardless of how you feel about his craft, really sticks to it. Yeah. And that's and that's what I, I respect, that he's coming at filmmaking from a totally different angle where the storytelling is last. And for him to actually come out and say that, like, I do it this way. I don't want to answer all, all the questions. I want you to figure it out for yourself, which comes off as pretentious in in one respect, like, oh, I don't know how to make a movie, so I'm just going to say it's up to the audience to figure it out. I don't think he's doing that. I do not I think that's either. an out. Um, now, what he did say is he can't direct something he didn't write because he writes from the point of view of the director and directs from the point of view of the writer a lot like Aster. Like, I already know how this has to be done. <laughs> right. I don't think Aster could direct somebody else's film. Mm -mm. Not after seeing how he works and his approach. And and I feel it's the same way here because of the historical accuracy and stuff. And even then the um the story part, I, I, I say your your opinion on it is fair, like story last. But I also feel like depending on what you're trying to get out of the movie, I don't need those details, nor do I, I care to hear them. I go back and forth on that, and my opinion on things changes. I've said this before on this fucking podcast. It changes movie to movie and writer to writer and director to director and going back and seeing things differently. When it really sucks going back on something that I remember <laughs> fondly and then go back and it's success. But, dude, if if we hadn't watched or for the podcast, hadn't done Hereditary and Midsummer. I, I would have fucking faked my way through this movie um, <laughs> in all seriousness. I've made you grow. <laughs> and, and that's what I'm getting at is so I can respect somebody else's jam. It's just not for me, but I'd love to see this guy, but I don't think he's found his footing yet. I think he's still getting there. And in all seriousness, and you're right. Cause like I said, I don't even know if he's gone to film school. He may or may not have, I couldn't find any information of it, but it's a stage actor writing and directing movies. And 
when you when you think about that, it's like, wow, and he made these two fucking things. It's really interesting because we like to say with with other directors, I'd like to see him make a slasher movie. I'd like to see him make a monster movie. I don't know what the fuck I'd like to see him do. Haunted House. Haunted House based off of some historical legend. Yes, or something actually going into the underworld with his whole thing about um, atmosphere and loving you know mythology and the occult. Like there's some very interesting psychologically tormented things you could do. I do want to point out he brought up in an interview that he was offered a Marvel deal and turned it down because he's an artist. I really think especially seeing how he looks scared for lack of better word in some interviews. I think some shit came on so fast and we've seen this a million times before he was probably offered some kind of a deal and he probably turned it down because a it's not what he's into and B imagine that kind of pressure when you're just out on the scene. Right. And you're like, I just got lucky. You're right. (laughs) Yeah. Like, no, I'm going to do what I write And which I understand that. And he seems to be hard to that, but I would be fucking terrified. I'm going to give you $300 million. Make this picture. Um, no. And and the witch (laughs) honestly got him offered the job to, to remake Nosferatu. Like I said at the beginning. And I said, I don't know what I'd like to see him make next. The Nosferatu. Nosferatu, Yeah. 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 This guy's fucking attention for detail and and accuracy to take a silent film. Right. (laughs) And add dialogue to it just off the scenery and trying to put it in, you know, in that country, in that timeline. I think he'd do a fantastic job at it. But he he doesn't actually classify himself as a horror director. He's actually on that side of the line of people that say, I don't think his films are horror. He doesn't really think he does horror. He says he can't watch horror movies. They freak him out. <laughs> he has a few classic ones that he likes. He just feels like he makes movies that are just based off ideas that he has. And he's going to stick, I guarantee you, with that that history, that legend, that myth, that occult, like any, it's got to be something interesting like that, that he can do some research on and have to go to a museum or seven <laughs> and talk to some, you know, he knows a guy and he can call the guy, you know, and talk to the experts and then start to write it out. And, and that's his jam. And I feel like that is always going to give him a completely different approach to anything he covers. And I can agree with all that. And to to go back to the beginning of that, where it's, you know people say it's not really horror, as far as this podcast goes, we have dipped our toe in psychological horror a few times now. And I'm a that's where I find this the witch way more way closer to a traditional horror movie. Um, this more closer to psychological thriller mindfuck movie. But let us know, you know, I I was vehemently opposed to the idea of straying off into this territory in my mind. I didn't (laughs) didn't share it with you in the beginning because it was it all started with this fucking Ari Aster shit. (laughs) I keep coming back to it. Yeah. But uh, so I like it. But let us know, you know, do you do you like it when we go here? Um, Do you like it where we go? You know, slapsticky fucking 80s shit. You know, let us know. Do you like it all? (laughs) I I do want to say my last thought. I, I agree wholeheartedly that The Witch is more of a traditional horror film. But every time that I watched The Lighthouse in the past few weeks, do you know what I heard in my head? I don't even think I said this earlier. Hitchcock, Hitchcock, Hitchcock. If you're going to say this movie is not a horror movie, then Hitchcock never made a horror film in his life. Yep, that is an excellent point. And that is a hill that I will fucking die on because (laughs) the whole time I watched this movie, I felt like it was a modern Hitchcock film. 
from the framing to the black and white use, the birds probably. I was fixing to say, helps. I need to, I need to actually sit down and watch the birds now. I'm thinking of the fucking seagulls and like, I should watch the birds. <laughs> the score, like the everything. I don't know. The whole movie to me was a Hitchcock film. And I really meant to say this about seven hours ago, but <laughs> I stand by that. If this isn't a horror movie, then Alfred Hitchcock never made a horror film. And I can't think of any other modern horror director that has made a movie that made me think of Hitchcock. And I'm saying modern starting with the eighties. <laughs> and all I can say is, uh, I've seen psycho <laughs> <laughs> and, and Robert Eggers. I'd still love to have a beer with you guy, but please don't ever make a slasher movie. <laughs> I just don't think it's in you. I don't think you'd take the job to be honest, but if anybody offers you an obscene amount of money to make a slasher movie, don't, Unless it's about this slasher known as Jack the Ripper. I'd probably watch you make a Jack the Ripper movie. See, probably fucking fantastic. See, you start talking about it and you get these ideas as you're going. So he needs to do Nosferatu. He needs to do a Jack the Ripper. And then I want to see him do, you know, an underworld, not fucking vampires, uh, <laughs> like Dante's Inferno type. <laughs> Depending how the Viking story goes out, you definitely could use Valhalla or the underworld yep. or anything into that. So, and I bet there's going to be some dark visions of Viking heaven or hell in there, <laughs> but uh, we could drone on and on about this man forever. We can't until he comes out with another movie. There's just two of them so far. <laughs> Your career has been five years and you've made two very well received films, regardless how we feel about them. This is one of the few episodes that we were going into that it happens occasionally. I'd say every 10 or so episodes, we, we pick a topic or a person off a circumstance and we're like, well, we're just going to do it. And then you watch it and you're pleasantly surprised. And that was Josh with Ari Aster, right? That's, that's how that happened. And I dreaded going into this one. And then I'm like, man, the witch is a great witch movie. And then I watched <laughs> the lighthouse four fucking times because I liked it and got my first Hitchcock vibe since I was a kid watching black and white movies. There you go. So, I mean, if we're here to talk about the director, I, I feel like if, if he's doing his own thing and he wants to be his own shining star, he's hit those nails on the head. And, uh, I don't know, just keep doing your own work guy. And, and it's going to be what you want of it. But, that's it for the Robert Eggers episode. So you guys are going to have to tune in on the next episode where we cover haunted house films. God damn it. This is my house. As usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email. sbyspodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbyspodcast. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening. Why just fill your beans?